Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about guides for our Year of the Sentinel series. And what I wanted, I wanted to talk about my entry into the Sentinel fandom and what I came out of it with. I'm not going to bitch about them again this time. Probably, maybe. Okay, so, okay, so when I came into the Sentinel, I don't know how I got there. I mean, I really don't because. I, I came into fandom with Stargate, right? And I feel like I stumbled into the Sentinel maybe through Lady Raw. I don't know. But what I mean, well, it had it, to that's be. how I got there. That's it how I had got to there. be because I was reading an author who moved it or moved was moving in and out of the Sentinel, right? I'm, I'm gonna buy yeah. Lady Raw. <laughs> okay, good choice. Because she wrote, she wrote a credit. lot of she wrote a lot of Stargate stuff, and she wrote a lot of NCIS stuff. But she also had crossovers for the Sentinel and did pure Sentinel stories. And um, uh, you know, and when I like an author, I tend to kind of see check out their other fandoms. Like, what else are they writing in? And she's exceptional, so why wouldn't you check out right? You, her other you can't writing. go wrong with Lady Raw. I mean, period. Speaking of which. She commented on my story and I fangirled a little. Then <laughs> <laughs> you wrong read my story. <laughs> I wouldn't tell it all. I, I wouldn't tell the bitches immediately. <laughs> Anyways, um I so I stumbled into the Sentinel, and let's just give her credit to, to, to Lady Raw. And um, I feel like it was her fix that I was just kind of moving into Stargate, and then it just kind of, you know, I just kind of tumbled into the Sentinel. Um, and there are a lot of pockets of the Sentinel that I got deeply uncomfortable with. And, you know, and, and you guys can pretty much assume, you know, if it involves consent issues, I'm going to be uncomfortable. So. When I stumbled out, uh, and I wrote The Awakening, because I was enamored with the idea of the Sentinel, and so I wrote, so I wrote The Awakening, and all that mess happened, and I stumbled out of the Sentinel fandom and back into Stargate, and I was writing Stargate at the same time. Um, I have a big plate. I have a lot of stuff on it. I've read Moon Hunt by Dolomere? Dolomar? Dolomere? I think it's Dolomere. Dolomere is how um, I pronounce it. So I've definitely read Moon Hunt. Um, but I came out of it with um, some, some conceptions and about and some concepts about Sentinels and guides that I tried to work into my work. Um, and there were a lot of false starts before I hit on the awakening. Uh, and a lot of it boiled down to the way guides were treated in Sentinel thick. And I try in, 
I had problems with the Fragile Sentinel. I had problems with the Fragile Guide. I mean, I really enjoyed Imperfections by Dasha. It's beautiful. Uh, but it just wasn't what I wanted to write. And I had a lot of false starts, including one where I had Jim and alternatively John Shepard in isolation for a year. And neither one of them clicked for me. I mean, I had this idea that John came online or Jim came online um, while Blair was in South America and Rodney was in Pegasus. You know, and I tried it both ways. And, um, and he ended up being um, isolated for his own good um, and for training and for his own health. And he grew very ill. And, and I was like, this is, and I was like, this is, this is not working for me. This is not working. And I, I, I couldn't figure out. And it was like, it was fundamentally the concept for me. Um, trying to write this fic was fundamentally flawed and looking back on it I, I can see why but at the time I was just frustrated that I wasn't getting it I wasn't getting anywhere I just wasn't getting anywhere with this and I had this beautiful idea about them coming together and bonding and then going to kick ass wherever they ended up kicking ass yes at one point I did have that one about Jim on um, EAD um but it came down to the the fact that a lot of the concepts in the Sentinel had bled into my into my workspace, and I tried to take them on board, and it didn't work. Then, do you see her humble bragging in the chat room already? Do you see this? <laughs> okay so then um around the time that i post i got the awakening baited by lady holder i stumbled across a fic on wraithbait because i had retreated back to stargate um i got the awakening baited i put it up i won some awards i got bitched at i rage quit the sentinel i went back to stargate I am in the midst of uh, writing um, what might have been. Race Bay still exists. Twig? Mm. <laughs> no, it's gone. Is it? Yeah. I was there a couple of months ago, wasn't I? Maybe I wasn't. Um, they have. I, I, at one point, I knew this the t saga of this. There was a backup site, but then that's not there anymore either. And it, you know, they'd sworn it was not going to go away, but I think they couldn't get access to whoever had the credentials for the server or something. I don't remember. It was some big couldn't find somebody who was really critical with renewing something. So yeah, you can pretty much only get to it through archive through the the web archive. Well, that sucks. Um, so I was over on Wraithbait. Now, Prospect got pushed into AO3. It was deliberately moved in through the open doors. Yeah. Which is a little bit difficult because until an author goes in and claims a story. There are no tags. There are no pairings. It's hard to search for those stories. So even some of the best Sentinel stories ever written will be hard to find. It would be great if they would let, you know, if they would have like volunteer committees to go in behind open doors and tag fic 
yeah, especially if the author provided tags, like in their summaries. It's like, I could see not tagging things in a way that an author wouldn't want, but usually it was customary for authors to provide headers and stuff at that time. And they had like content tags in there. They didn't call them that, but you know, they would tell you what their story was about and have people at I mean, least, at least have those. pairings on them. <laughs> Something. But so I, I, I was rambling around on race bait and I come across a story uh, called the unlikely and the unwilling. And it was written by lady holder. And it took me months and months and months to connect the fact that the person who had baited awakening was actually the same person who wrote the unlikely and the unwilling. Anyways. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Th this is what I want. This, this is what I haven't been getting because I had been reading, um, and I'd accidentally stumbled into some fix that were based kind of off the that GDP stuff and um, in the Sentinel b before I rage quit. And it was like, I had a lot of issues. This was before she killed my tea lady. <laughs> um, there's somebody in the wrong chat. You want to, someone go get her? The, the, um, they're in the wrong audio. Um, it. I needed. I, I I needed strength in my characters. Um, and vulnerability, but not weakness. And I had let the sentinel fandom influenced me in ways I hadn't even recognized. And even years later, I, I think I think probably like the last two or three years I was looking over those fix that fizzled on me. And I recognized then what the problem was. This isn't this isn't my this was um my infant headcanon in the Sentinel was corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way I can say it it was corrupted and so I had to like rebuild and that rebuilding took place on rough trade a lot and when and in writing Sentinels of Atlantis um, where I, I had to find this balance between needing a partner and wanting a partner um, between strength and vulnerability because, you know, honestly, as much as I enjoy reading some of those stories about fragile sentinels or guides, they don't make sense, evolutionarily speaking. If a sentinel is that delicate coming online, they don't survive. That trait would have been bred out a long time ago. Long before we ever got an urban sentinel. Yeah, now I could see an urban environment would actually put some stressors on a sentinel that they might ultimately have to ac account for or learn to accommodate that, like, you know, coming online in the jungle would not um, yeah. cause. But then there but, are also issues, if you're raised in an urban environment, coming on in the jungle could ruin you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so... 
I think that I think that there could be some, but the the degree of fragility that sometimes I would read in stories, it's like really that doesn't seem. On the other hand, they actually did make Jim a little more fragile in canon than I thought was reasonable. But you could also attribute that to there being him trying to suppress it, or oh, you could account for that. You could lampshade that in a few ways. Um, either he's denying his guide, or he's um, suppressing it, or you know. But the fact that he just was zoning all the time realistically the way Jim was depicted in canon, he shouldn't have had a car, be driving a car. He shouldn't have been handling a gun. Um, it just, he was too likely to zone. He had too many sensitivities. Uh, so, you know, um, but the Sentinel fandom built a really strong, and canon built a really strong foundation for the Sentinel. And we did have a really strong foundation foundation for how to adapt a fanon around the sentinel there wasn't a lot on a guide because guide was pretty much a fanon concept outside of blair being called his guide once or twice but it was not didn't seem to be referenced in any kind of mystical terms the only thing mystical was the reference to the to in in, in kacha being a shaman or something like that um the, the spirit plane things um and then, so the function, the fan that developed around guide, that was all making um, little pieces, what little teeny bit we got of Blair's role in the show and building an entire mythology around it. Huge mythology. But some people built what I would call a really ugly mythology that's very off-putting, um, that bordered on slavery. And in and some cases, whether outright slavery. Outright slavery, yeah. And sometimes it was a case of just Blair that was treated this way. In other cases, it was like a Sentinels and Guides are known universe and all guides are enslaved kind of thing. Um, well, no, there are some fix where it was border. Um, there, there, and what you would see is that you would see these fix that went all in on the whole concept of guides being owned, guides being property, guides not being allowed to do anything but breathe softly yeah. in the corner. And so, yeah, <laughs> sometimes it was a case of guides have no rights except to be bonded to a sentinel, but that sentinels at least valued them. And then the, some people would take the next level and they would have it be that sentinels just treated them like property. Um, but then there were others that were subversively just as bad. Yeah. And that's why we want to use what she, she used the word border because there were no official laws about guides being, you know, um, and there were even fix that would say that they were canon compliant or close to canon that explored this concept where Blair wasn't allowed to have a relationship. He wasn't allowed to basically talk to anybody but Jim. He was there for Jim and Jim's senses alone. He had to quit school. I mean, it's just like, and a lot of these things were like, okay, that's actually just as bad as making Blair a slave. He's not allowed to smell like anyone who isn't Jim because you wouldn't want Jim's senses to get out of whack because Blair brushed up against somebody in the market. It's just, he's not allowed to have a sex life because, you know, and also because there was a huge, a big segment. This is not a single fic, right? There was a big segment of homophobia in the Sentinel where they would not write Jim and Blair together. They were both going to be heterosexual, but Jim was going to be in a relationship, but Blair was going to be, you know, a eunuch to, uh, for for the sake of Jim's delicate senses, couldn't the have a relationship. 
the worst thing I ever read outside of, and I didn't actually ever read any of those GDB things, BP things. Um, I would see it. Nope, I'm done. <laughs> nope out as soon as I realized what it was, right? Um, because I can't, I can't read that. I mean, that's just my own mental health coming into play. You got to take care of yourself when it comes to shit like that, right? Um, but the worst thing I ever read was that Blair, Jim was married. And Blair was Jim's guide. And I don't know if this was a Sentinels or Guide is known universe or not. Um, and I was like, okay, this is fine. I'm not really thrilled because this isn't my pairing, but I'm reading it. And then, as it turned out, Blair was basically Jim's hole. So Jim had this wife and kid. And he would occasionally go find Blair and fuck him. But Blair wasn't allowed to have a relationship and Blair wasn't allowed to acknowledge that they had sex. It wasn't sex. It was bonding and it shouldn't be treated like sex. And it was honestly best if Blair didn't enjoy it. Yeah. That's actually one of my least favorite bonding tropes because I've run into it. You stumbled over it is the guide who is there just to keep the Sentinel. They have no function right? A sentinel has to have a bond. The guide is just there to help the sentinel save it. And maybe the sentinel will fuck him sometime. It's just like, it's, it's a trope there. It, it's a pervasive trope, but it really bothers me, you know? And people and are welcome. Like, he fucked him to get his senses in order. Like, it was like anchoring or something. Not, that, that's not the right word. Um, grounding? Grounding, yes. And that was the whole point. And that was it. That was Blair's entire role. He was Jim's hole. Uh, uh, of course, I no doubt. I don't even know how the story ended, right? Because I'm like, fuck you. Just fuck you. <laughs> and so, you know, coming out of the Sentinel, I... I had actually absorbed a lot of ridiculous things that I had to work my way out of. And that's why a lot of those projects fizzled. Why do people write that? Um, objectification. Uh, objectification, but also they... Um... Some people have a serious kink for objectification. But some people also have a very serious kink for kind of making one character a You're woobie. For me. Am I? Um, they kind of woobify a character. They make them the the weak, emotional. Um, so, still? Mm -hmm. I'm going to disconnect and come back in. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, that whole designated crier thing is a thing in fandom for a, a reason. I mean, it's a it's a cliche for a reason because, like, it's like you go into any fandom and there's there is a designated crier. There is somebody that authors a certain segment of authors dedicate themselves to having that character cry at the drop of a hat. 
And in in CIS is Tony Donoso, which makes no sense. The funny to me. thing, no, the funny thing is, I read this thing. I read this article about it was. They didn't call it the designated crier, but they talked about it. Specifically, was about the character in any given fandom that fandom likes to have cry. And like in Supernatural, it's Dean. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, in in MCU, it's Tony Stark. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I see it. I see it. Not that I get it. I see it. But they said in NCIS it was Tim McGee, and I went, what? That's not my experience. <laughs> my experience is Tony. Um, and it could be, I, I don't read a lot of Tim-centric fic, but um, I certainly haven't noticed him being made the designated crier. But anyway. I mean, um, he. I would say he's the designated whiner in canon. Yeah. But that isn't the same thing at all. Um. And yeah, some fandoms, they just, it's hard to pinpoint who the designated crier is because everybody's, it's like a bucket of fucking tears. Um, um, so, like in The Sentinel, it's Blair. Oh, yeah. And but if we want it's Daniel Jackson. But it's not Am just designated, no, no. <laughs> but it's not just designated crier. It's also the designated victim of Wump. It's that's also, the, whoever the designated crier is, is usually whoever gets Wumped the most. Um, and, the, the the ugly head the ugly fan that developed around guides is is the hard thing for a lot of people to shake off in the sentinel um and then they think that that's the way it has to be for guides right they, ha they have to write guides a certain way it's like i can't tell you how many times i've had the conversation with people and it's been more than a dozen there is no canon about guides. You can do what you want. No, they don't have to be joined to Sentinel's hip. No, they don't have to leave their jobs to go work with their Sentinel. That's all fanon. It's and it and it may have been a pervasive fanon, but it's just fanon. You do what you, and the thing is, any anybody can do what they want. And you know, this is not only about any specific story, but it's about tropes that developed by that were developed by a lot of embraced by a lot of writers that are problematic for a lot of people. And it's why I think, um, I think the Sentinel fandom stagnated in terms of growth for a long time. It's because people, I think, didn't know what to do with those tropes coming in. And also there was a segment of people in the fandom who were dedicated to forcing others to write those tropes. And they would berate you when you didn't. bash your story um flame give blue flames you know but and the thing is and then the sentinels and guides are known thing i think really started taking off and sentinels and guide crossovers that's how i i read i did used to read the sentinel just like read it there were a few authors that i really liked like ali jude um, mm, i love ali jude wrote a very balanced and healthy relationship dynamic between jim and, and blair and it was just it wasn't sentinels and guides are known it was just pure stories um and most of the time blair didn't have any special abilities right he was jim's partner and they were in a healthy um relationship with one another it was really good so now i love a healthy relationship but i'm gonna confess something i also like a codependent mess <laughs> <laughs> now is it Crossovers, not Sentinels and Guides are known, but crossovers between the Stargate franchise and the Sentinel franchise were huge. To the point that there was a dedicated Yahoo group just for um, crossovers between Sentinel, the Sentinel and, S and the Stargate franchise, um, which is where one of the first stories, 
I don't. I think this may have been announced on that list, but I don't know if it actually was posted to the list, which is where I the first time I read Scorpions, which is a crossover that Lady Raw wrote um, between Stargate and Sentinel. And it's also a dimension jump story. And in there, in the crossovers is where I really fell in love with the Sentinel again. Scorpion, it, is that the one where Jim comes from an alternate universe? Yes. He's covered in scorpions. The story starts, folks. I'm not giving too much of a spoiler. But he, he literally lands in this. He comes from an alternate universe where he's part of the SGC. And in the, he's coming to the canon Sentinel universe, right? Where Jim and Blair are up in Cascade. And I think that Blair has just given his press conference. Anyway, so Jim from another dimension shows up in the gate room covered in scorpions. His guide has been abducted. I want to say by Apophis. Um, and he needs help from that that dimension's Blair get his Blair back. And so he shows up at the SGC where where, where are Jim and Blair? And they're not there because they're not part of the SGC in that dimension. It's a great story. I mean, if you have not read Scorpions, I highly recommend it. Because you can't um, go wrong with Lady Raw. We should make really it a can. meme. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I really just, and I, I was just, it was one of those things, like I wanted more Stargate um, I like Stargate. I like Sentinel. I really wanted more Stargate Sentinel stories, and um, and then I started just wanting more crossovers with the Sentinel. And I found a few. There were very few at that time NCIS crossovers with the Sentinel. And usually those were the case of like it was there was a there's like this slow wave of change in the Sentinel fandom where you went from having some crossovers where Jim and Blair would be the Sentinel guide going into another fandom like Stargate, and then there was this slow wave of um, one sentinel or guy, one sentinel comes online from another fandom, and most of them were Tony coming online. There were, I think, two or three of them where Tony comes online as a sentinel. And it was based in, I saw why people picked Tony actually, because in canon, Tony had incredible sensory acuity. Um, he has exceptional eyesight. He solved a case by remembering somebody's perfume once. That's early canon, that's like in season one or two. So Tony, from a sensory perspective, actually solved cases in NCIS canon. So it wasn't a big surprise when people started having Tony coming online as a sentinel, but nobody knew what a sentinel was. So Tony's like out of his mind with his senses going all over the place. And, um, and they do some research online. And I think it's Abby in one story. She finds Blair's thesis and they call Jim and Blair and Jim and Blair come and, oh, here's another sentinel. There's also one where Tony comes online, um, somebody's abducted him, and they're hunting, hunting him and somebody else through the woods or something. He comes online as a result of that. They do make Gibbs his guide. It's a little bit, Gibbs is Tony's guide, it's always a bit of a stretch for me. But to be fair, at that time in NCIS fandom, there weren't many stories that weren't Tony Gibbs. <laughs> there just weren't. Right, just, yeah. It was like, that was it. Um, so if Tony was going to be a crying thing, um, the, the designated crier is a problem, but having a character cry is not. There, you know, it, it, there is a time and a place for it in your story, and it is perfectly okay for your character to have um, very deep emotions that cause tears, whether it's happy tears or sad tears or furious tears, you know, that's perfectly okay. What is not okay is for your character to cry repeatedly like a faucet and throw and shit. It, 
time and place, time and place, because you can't be a federal agent if you're bursting into tears all the time. They, you just can't. And I don't mean that your character can't be a crier. I mean that they're not going to keep their badge and their gun if they're constantly bursting into tears. They're going to get a psyche veil and a quiet retirement. That's just reality. And a box of tissue. Yeah. And uh, a box of tissue. <laughs> Sorry, babe. But, you know, so, I, so I'm, you know, it's okay to have your character cry. It's okay to cry. It's just, if you're crying every five minutes, you need a therapist. <laughs> I speak from experience. <laughs> I got a therapist. It helped. But adults should have emotional control. And if you're writing an adult character um, and you don't allot them an appropriate amount of emotional control, your child in your um your adult character ends up looking childish and immature. That makes sense. Yeah. So you just gotta. I mean, I have Tony cry in several stories. Although I sometimes treat crying a lot like sex, sort of a fade to black. Um, it's like I allude to it and then end the scene because, and part of that's just me. I'm not comfortable crying. I'm not particularly comfortable writing it. Um, I recognize that it happens. It happens to me. It's uncomfortable when it happens to me. Sad um, crying, I burrow and hide. Angry crying, right? I have a fit. <laughs> Lots of spite with angry crying. Because um, I mean, if somebody makes me so angry that I'm crying, I am going to take measures. <laughs> <laughs> serious, serious measures. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, like there's going to be a plan. There might be some a trip to Home Depot. <laughs> I'm going to make an offering to my patron saint of spite, and there is going to be a reckoning. John cried in what might have been. I think a lot of people miss it. Um, but after Rodney was kidnapped and he John got him back, um, when they're in bed together, um, John cried. It was a relief. I had uh, I had Tony cry twice in If Found. Um. But it is very subtle. And I think for me, that's the point. Um, that it's, um, that that was an intimacy um, that he let himself, he, he let the walls kind of fall down and just kind of surrendered to McKay in that moment all that anxiety and worry kind of fell on him and he was in a space that he was comfortable. And so he allowed himself to express it. But, and so that when you do that, when, when you have that kind of moment, it, it, it creates, that's a beautiful piece of characterization to be able to create. Right. Um, but if you have your character crying every five minutes, there's no power there. No, it's really not. You gotta, you gotta, for it to really take the audience there and to make the audience, you know, I mean, honestly, 
kind of want if I've got my characters to the point that they're going to kind of fall apart. I kind of want my audience to fall apart too. I'm like, I'm going to work for it, you know. Um, <laughs> so you want it to be impactful, and if, like I said, if curious if they're crying constantly, it it's just nothing happening. Well, what are the best moments in um, Freedom? Shut up! Don't talk about this story. <laughs> I, I'm just going to just a little bit. Okay, at the end, when when Rodney is talking, um, when when he's gone to visit John's grave, and he's talking to him, and he says, "You know, I'm really um, if I didn't already know that you were gonna die young, I'd be a mess right now." Well, he's not a mess, but the reader is. <laughs> Because by the time I get there, I'm a sobbing mess. And Rodney's clear-eyed, and he's got a focus, and he's got a goal. Um, he's still grieving, but he's not. Um, he's not devastated. But there's such this there's just quiet grief in that moment that is um, it overwhelms me every single time I read it. And there's power yes. there. And if Rodney had had expressed that that deep intense grief every moment of that fic the power in that moment would have been gone honestly I probably couldn't have read the whole thing (laughs) well but sometimes if somebody's crying constantly you've got to just you got to pick your moment somebody has a a story I can't remember who I can't remember and I can't remember that there's the it's the story where Tony dies in dead air and Gibbs is listening to the recording of his think but it's a, it's when he it's when he buries Tony with Shannon oh, and Kelly, and then he goes back to Stillwater. Yeah, and then his and then Tony's dad comes around six months later asking for his inheritance. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any crying in that one. I cried, I cried, I cried like a baby. <laughs> yeah. Now, unlike Kira reads, freedom is just another word for nothing less to lose. She reads it like on a, on the regular. I read it once. That was it. I was like, I can't know. Never again. Well, um, sometimes you just want, I just want to cry. Sometimes I some, just need an emotional outlet. And that's what I pick. I did that. That's not my pick for an emotional outlet. I mean, no. Once, once, it's beautiful. It's beautifully written. And you, I mean, that's what I, you, I aspire to, right, as a writer, is to have those moments that take people somewhere, either where they're cr- laughing or crying or just joyful. That's what I want. And you don't get it by bludgeoning the audience with your character crying. Just starts to feel artificial. Um, it's sort of like being told something's funny. It's just not very funny. Right, or something where it's like all the characters are in hysterics, and I mean, I write things sometimes where the characters are amused. That's not what I'm talking about, but it's like it's like being it's like you're being told this scene is funny, but it really isn't that amusing. Which is why I can't plot humor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> humor, humor spontaneous for me. Otherwise, it doesn't. It either happens flat. or it doesn't. I mean, one of the funniest things I've ever written was not intended to be funny, but at least people tell me it's funny, is the robbery scene in Imperfect. Um, and nobody is laughing in that entire scene. There's nobody on screen laughing in that. That is pretty funny, though. Because it's, it's like... Of course. It, of, of course. Of course. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. Of course. Fine. Fuck. <laughs> and Morgan is like... He's like... 
can't be serious. He he can't believe what he's hearing. He's like, come on. He thinks Tony's exaggerating until he watches the video. And but Tony's describing, he goes, but wait, it gets better because to Tony, it's just ridiculous. It's not funny. He thinks this is like the most absurd thing that's ever happened to him. And he's then Morgan goes something. goes and watches the video. But absolutely nobody is laughing in that scene because um well, honestly, really, nobody really thought it was all that funny, but it comes across humorously to the audience, or at least that's what it is funny. Ended up happening. Um, it was intended to be lighthearted because the story had been pretty angsty, and I needed to break that shit up. <laughs> Someone um, mentioned absence of war on the first chapter broke my heart. I mean, it, I cried writing most of the first oh chapter. God. Sorry, God. <laughs> I saw. I, I read. Uh, right, it was like half the presses. She finished writing Absence of War, and she sent me that first uh, finished writing. She sent me that first chapter. She wrote it. She goes, "When did you get the start of this?" And I was like, "Jesus fucking Christ!" <laughs> like, give me a minute. Give me a minute. <laughs> well, I needed. I needed. Um, I needed to set the tone for the story, and sometimes. Um, with a with a large work like Absence of War or um, or recently All the World, um, setting your tone early is super stupid important. And when it comes to the Absence of War, it is very very important. It, it felt like I had to set this this deep um, tone to highlight Dumbledore's. evilness <laughs> i can't think of another word to describe it it's just because he's and i've skirted around the issue a lot of dumbledore leaving sirius black in prison on purpose and i've and i've touched on it in several stories but i've never explored the ramifications of that yeah i agree i think you needed that really sharp contrast to show to give set the stage for why there was such extreme action taken against him. Um, and some things are better shown than, than, you know, you got to see it. So the audience has that emotional connection. So, but anyway, you want to, you want to work for your, you got to, if, if you're setting the same emotional tone through your same, through the whole story, the whole story is going to set the, have that tone. So if it's the character crying over everything, and then the tears don't start it and it never ends <laughs> the tear the carrot there's no it ceases to have any impact so when the really big moment happens the audience doesn't feel anything different than they did when he was crying over a paper cut you know um like, woman, oh, how, but, that, how, how bad could it be he cried over a paper cut <laughs> right this guy's just a crier is he really emotionally affected or no um <laughs> Okay, so back to the guides. Um, um, so you have to be careful with, with guides, like how do you want to portray them? And guides are where I think I see the most, there's a lot of different expressions of fanon around Sentinels too, but it all comes back to the senses, right? 
But guys, people go everywhere with it. They go everywhere. And I really love the way the Sentinels and Guides are known universes have evolved to do interesting thing with the guides, whether it's through the, the shamanistic abilities or explorations of differences in the psionic plane or um, different abilities they might have or their different functions they might have. It's, it's just, it's really great to see the fanon evolving and guide tropes that are really interesting um, developing. And the only thing I think that really matters when you're building whatever your guide world building is for your guides and sentinels is that your story is internally consistent. So you don't have to do everything anybody do whatever somebody else has done. You can take a bit from this and a bit from that. It's just make sure it all works together. Um, so for July, I'm going to be doing one of the stories. I'm going to be doing it's a little bit more straightforward for me. Straightforward, straightforward bonding story because I didn't. I'm doing one that's kind of complicated for a short story format. Not complicated for actually, 25k is more like a novella, but whatever. It's a little complicated in the world building. And the, the other one, I'm like, I want something a little bit more straightforward. Straightforward bonding story, you know, a little bit of tension, meat, chemistry, fuck, bond. Yay, done. <laughs> Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Exactly. <laughs> um, but then, I, you know, I wanted something that had a little bit different. And so Kira and I were talking about um, different world building around um, and I don't want to spoil it because it's the climax of the story, but some different, different working about what the psionic plane is for and how that interacts with and how that how that works on the temporal plane, how the physical plane interacts, the, the relationship between the spirit realm and the tangible realm. So it's because I, I just sometimes I want to try different things, but one of the things I typically do in in my almost all my stories is I really work on my guide world building because I feel like at the sentinel world building I can tweak here or there. But outside of a couple of things, there's just not a lot that's gonna shift from people who can hear, see, and smell really well. <laughs> um so for me, all the a lot of the fun for me is in what I'm gonna do with the guides. How are their abilities gonna be? What kind of things are they going to be able to do? Um and so I really enjoy the guide world, being, world building side of that. And so I think that it is for guide part of it is the opportunity to really flex your creative muscles and figure out what you want to do. Now, you don't have to. You can just, um, you don't have to have your guides have any special abilities at all. But it is an, it's an option for you. It's, you have the opportunity there. Now, we do have, <laughs> we have had people ask things like can your sentinel not have ant senses well, no. no then they're not a sentinel <laughs> they're not a sentinel it is the one thing that you pretty much have to do is the definition of sentinel by canon is that the sentinel a sentinel is somebody with all all five senses enhanced um now have some people do things like a three cent sentinel or something like that i i don't know how you actually work out the Details of that? Do they mean that they have two senses that are not enhanced enough? Um, I actually think that granular testing for touch, like very specific testing for touch and taste, would be almost impossible. Because um, there comes a point where 
any, you know, you just can't, right? How much more are you going to be able to feel? And when it comes to taste, I would think that would get overwhelming very quickly because it's so tightly connected to scent that if you, you could really overwhelm somebody's senses. Also, you're putting it in your mouth. So that feels very, but that's just me, you know, people. So I could see where you might, like I usually in um, the demons universe, I only have them tested on three senses because they can't refine the difference between like a mid-level sentinel and a high-level sentinel. When it comes to the other two senses, it's too hard to test. Yeah, it's it's hard for me. I just it to me it doesn't even if somebody's done a good job with their storytelling, it it's not what a sentinel is because the foundational principle of the show was Jim was looking for people with five enhanced senses and he called them a sentinel. They were uh, well, Richard Burton. Uh, yeah, Blair. Sorry, Blair. <laughs> Richard, Sir Richard Burton had um had written this monograph about sentinels and they were ancient throwbacks and that was the whole foundational principle the show so if you take us that and you deconstruct the sentinel concept to be one or two senses blair had found people with one or two senses enhanced well the fact is that they exist i they do i am one of them i have a very 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 sensitive nose there was a time when I was younger. Uh, it's ridiculous how sensitive my nose was. And if I hadn't bothered to train it and do something with it, I could probably done it professionally. Um, I have a cousin who is a professional taster. Pro professional tasters usually also have an incredible sense of smell. Hers her um, smell is good, but not as good as mine. At least it was. So I, I've gotten older, it's gotten more, like less sensitive probably could have been a professional taster too mm -hmm. and people with exceptional eyesight become pilots and so enhanced senses in um in the ones and twos already exist and and blair had in canon blair had found people that fit that criteria but he had never found a sentinel because a sentinel was somebody with five enhanced senses that was the definition so i this is just my this is me i personally struggle with the concept of one two three four cent sentinels i think it's I don't think it's that. I don't think they're actually sentinels. No, I, I would. They're, they're against, but they're not sentinels. Yeah. What it so, boils down to is the sentinel has five senses, but his job is to use those five senses to protect his tribe. So, and because, and normally I'm all for fuck cannon, but it was the foundational concept of what a sentinel is. So deconstructing that feels like you're throwing the entire Sentinel thing out. So why call it that? It's no longer the Sentinel. I mean, if you want to write a story about a person who has two or three advanced senses in a world where there are Sentinels and them dealing with the idea that they're not actually a Sentinel because they don't have all the senses and dealing with that emotional, like, is, is, is that an emotional issue? Are they relieved? Are they, are they mad? Um, what's going on with them? Do they wish they had all five senses? Um, do they feel like they dodged a bullet? You know, talk about that, but, but don't call them a Sentinel because they're not a Sentinel. And you could, somebody asked, you could have a, and I have read stories where Sentinels come online slowly. 
like they get one sense becomes active one or two before they come online um and you could do a whole thing with that like it maybe it's their what's going to be their strongest sense are the ones that kind of come online ahead of time so they have time to adapt and or whatever i mean you could do things but i just don't th think it's a sentinel if it's now whatever you do i think in at least one of the rough trade challenges we've said it has to be somebody with five enhanced senses i don't remember i think so. I'm, I'm of the opinion if they don't have five advanced senses they're not a sentinel and if you're writing a story about them on during rough trade during the year of the sentinel then you then you failed the challenge but that's my opinion you do you boo um but when it comes to the guides there's no rules there's no there's no concept of what a guide is outside of because jim blair training jim to use his senses and the whole dials thing that doesn't necessarily actually mean what a guide is people put them together but that was blair was just some random dude helping him figure out how to deal with his senses and he did happen upon a way that worked for jim but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the function of a guide. In canon, Blair didn't have empathy. He did have a spirit animal, though. Yes. So. So there was something there. But arguably, you could say that everybody has a spirit animal. It's just that Blair only encountered his during death. But B Jim had encountered his before that. He, yeah, it, in Katja did call him the shaman of the great city. Um, it's interesting that Cascade is a great city, the, the great city. Um, yeah, Jim, Blair was definitely a badass. Absolutely, Blair was a badass. But there's just not any real guidance in canon about what a guide is. Guide is pretty much, outside of the word being used, uh, that criminal, What's we, which is honestly a gift, right? That the XCI agent Lee Lee Bracket, yeah. So it is. You're right. Gave us the less room we had to maneuver. Um, well, if you have any respect for canon, right. <laughs> So I find it interesting that even though canon gave us so little about guys, that they're pretty much a fanon construct, especially as it comes to to like a preordained, you know, matches and, um, you know, bonding or whatever tropes you want to latch onto. That's all fanon constructs. So fandom constructed all of that stuff. So... Um, I got my own rule. You did. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> it's been a while since we've been in here. <laughs> so fandom, that's all, all that stuff is constructed by fan, fandom. Fandom created all those concepts. And then weirdly, they tried to make people use them. And you don't have to. You, you can do kind of whatever you want. Um, Except in July when it has to be bonding. You have to have some sort of bonding. Now, what does bonding mean? Up to you. <laughs> to you. It could just mean physical bonding. It could just literally mean we've had sex the first time. It could be a spiritual connection. It could be a mental connection. It could be all of the above. Um, it could be accidental bonding. Um, 
watch your consent issues around accidental bonding. Courting is an interesting way of approaching bonding. Um, so you just kind of room when it comes to constructing the guide and your world building and what that means with bonding. I do think guides are really critical, play a really critical role in the whole bonding trope. So no super glue. That's a very literal approach. <laughs> and write some weird crack fic where, you know, two people get super glued together. They're bonded. I don't think so, y'all. That would just it, it would just end up being somewhere terrible. <laughs> now I usually write bonding as an empathic connection. That's the way I usually write it. There's I like a, it. A, I like that. A, a mental connection and a mental and emotional connection that is forged between the two people who are entering in the bond consensually. Um, I don't like the idea of forced bonding. I don't like the idea. I, I've read some accidental bonding on occasion and it can be fine. It all depends on the approach. Um, but sometimes it approaches a little bit. Sometimes I've read some accidental bonding. That's a little bit approaching dubious consent. So um, you don't have to write sex. No, no, no. And you don't have to have sex for your bonding. You could write the bonding is a very deliberate act that like you sit and you meditate and you meet on the spirit plane and you bond or that it's done through a ritual where there's some incense being burned or some herbs, but you got some sage and then you're just burning the fuck out of it. And you recite some ritual words and poof, you're bonded. You know, I mean, how the bonding sage. happens, it's up to you. During sex is very common. I in, in wrath. Jim and Spock bond on the psionic plane. They one don't mind. They, they, they don't bond on the psionic plane. I don't remember which one, though. So there was no sex in Wrath. There was some kissing, though. <laughs> Both kinds. Both kinds of kissing. Like, they held hands. Um... <laughs> When I've been in a Star Trek mood, you know, and I'm out and somebody's holding hands, I can tell when I've been reading too much Star Trek because people <laughs> holding hands seems so dirty. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> it reminds me of that cartoon I sent you about the snow people in the front yard. Which cartoon? It's a little cartoon. You see two snow people on the sidewalk, and then oh, there are the two snow more people. snow people in the front yard, and they're making a right. baby snowman. And right. on the sidewalk, the female um, snow person says, would you look at them in the front yard? Because <laughs> they're making a baby. Shameless. <laughs> So if I'm out and people holding hands feels like I'm watching an intimate act, I go, I need to dial back the Star Trek fic. It's gone too far. Um, <laughs> but you could do, you could have approach bonding. I've, 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 you can have um, bonding that happens during sex, bonding that happens after sex, bonding. You could write no sex. You could have it just be um, that they hold hands and agree to bond. However you want to get them connected. You can do a hand fasting. <laughs> you could do that too. Bonding could be very, it could be a very physical thing. It could be emotional. It could be um, just, but some kind of connection. 
And I've read stories that had very complicated world building around bonding. Like there were intimate, there were short-term bonds, like Sentinels and Guides working together had to have some sort of bonds that you'd have short-term bonds and bonds could be easily broken. Um, you know, you'd, you'd go through like a whole, you'd like check into a center and you would get your bond severed and then you would go through like some empathic healing and then you'd move on to your next bond. It's, you know, but it, that that was one type of bond that was like a working bond. And then there'd be other kinds of bonds where you would have, you know, lifelong bond without the same thing as a working bond. So that's a little complicated for me in 25K. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a little complicated for me in 100K. I, but maybe it's just the romance writer in me. I just, yeah. I find that kind of, I don't know. I think the closest I ever got to any kind of complication like that about different levels was that I kind of, but I only touched on it was in, I wasn't waiting for you. Um, is it, but it's not bonding, it's imprinting. Is it, you know, a Sentinel will imprint up to three senses on a guide that they're working with only, that they don't imprint all their senses on a guide that is going to be, you know, gone at the end of the day. And it's just so that they can work with them. Um, sometimes even less. So it's two to three senses is that you would imprint on the guy that you were working with. And then um, and it helps, it was to provide a sensory ground if you needed a, gui a guide to help you with your sensory work. So that was the closest I ever got to degrees. Um, but I never stepped into the bonding territory. To me, it's just like bonding should be an intimacy. And should be. Not something that I would want to share with just every Tom, Dick, and Harry that I came across. Now, I could see choosing to write guy bonds as not being permanent, right? Like, maybe that bond severance is a thing that happens. Like, Sentinels and Guides do sometimes get divorced. But I would imagine it would still be kind of written as being kind of painful. Not something you would want to do unless you, you know, you really felt you had to. <laughs> Music Starlight says that kind of reminds you of the different types of collaring and ties that bind. Some bonds are like catch and release. Well, Most that's actually true of that's actually true of the BDSM community in reality. Yeah, um, very. there are there there are temporary there there are very short term contracts. Um, sometimes there are. Um, I mean, I know a friend. Who, I have a friend who likes to be collared um, for scenes. And only for scenes. And she's not particular about whose collar she wears. <laughs> it's just part of her kink to have a collar on. It makes her feel owned. And that's part of her kink um, in a scene. But you wouldn't catch her out in public with a collar on. Not on a bet. <laughs> because to her, that's a very private thing. You know, so... Of course, I would never put a collar on somebody I wasn't in a at least in some sort of relationship with. Um, and even if they only wore it in the scene, right? Even if they only right. wore it during playtime, I still would have to have some sort of more semi-permanent connection to that person. Even if we just played regularly to put a collar on, I would not put a collar on somebody just for tonight. That would that would make me deeply uncomfortable. I'm like, it's bring your own collar night. <laughs> <laughs> I think she does actually have several of her own collars. Yeah, if somebody wanted to wear their own collar, I wouldn't care. But I would not I would not put my collar on somebody for one night. That would be like a hell no. Because it, to me, for me, this is my kink, right? It's It reflects a level of intimacy between us. 
And so... But then there are some doms who don't give a shit. Right. They really don't. So, But that's why you know, everybody's little kink is different. Um... So when it but when it so when it comes to bonding, you could build your your mythology around that to be whatever suits your story and suits you personally. But bear in mind, this is a short story challenge, so, and be consistent. Yeah. And also, don't get crazy. Be mindful of your ripples, because if you do something crazy. <laughs> Like, I don't know, like, have your guide have a spot on their neck uh, that if it gets touched by another person, they become immediately vulnerable to bonding to the person who touched them without their permission. That implies. That's gross, and it's rapey. I'm sorry, it's gross. Yeah. Um, it, if you create a situation where if you put I you know honestly don't think it's realistic for there to be zero homophobia in a world or zero racism or zero prejudice or zero sexism because there's always that one asshole who's got to feel like he's he or she is superior to somebody else for some reason. That's the human condition. My skin's better than yours. My genitalia is better than yours. My preference of sex partners is better than yours. My college degree is better than yours. They they always got to have something, right? They're, that that asshole's probably always existed. It's just the fucking cave, right? But if you create a world where the homophobia is so entrenched that guides are subjugated um, and treated like pets to make it okay for a sentinel to bond with a guide. You are creating a world. Um, you, your foundation of your world is slavery. Yeah. And so you need to know, you need to be careful of your ripples. If your guide, if, if guides come online um, with no shields and no ability to protect themselves, no matter their circumstances, um, you're basically creating a situation where there has got to be somewhere on this planet a hospital full of guides who went psychotic when they came online. That's one thing to have it be a one-off, but if it's consistent that that's the way guides come online, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Society wouldn't be able to sustain that. Guides, guides wouldn't exist. Latent guides would be shunted to the fringes of society and kept in institutions until they came online and were able to prove that they were stable. Right. So it, it being an occasional one-off, like you had, like I did the in Imperfect, that Tony, the drugs he was given in, um, when he was in Africa, I can't remember the name of that country. Somalia, Somalia. Um, my cave is being, better than yours. I just saw that. My cave is better than yours. Um, <laughs> take cave to mean what you will. Um, <laughs> um, but well, I know where I went. <laughs> I know exactly where you went. Um, but in why is that the featured image? 
whatever. Sorry, Tan, that just was totally off topic. But anyway, um, in in that story, he came online with inability, no ability to build build his shields because the the, the hot homemade truth cock truth serum cocktail. He had been given. Um, prevented him from being able to form a primary shield. So he agreed to be sedated to stop that, not even the torment to himself, but to the trauma he was causing the people around him with his inability to, to be able to build a primary shield. Um, so, you know, that's, but that was a one-off. If, but if that happened with every guide that came online, they wouldn't allow latent guides to be around people. It would be too dangerous. So, you know, you have to be careful when you set like everything is always goes like this, that, well, what are the ramifications of that? We already have a big suspension of disbelief issue. People come into reading stories like this where they are, they're willingly suspending their disbelief that sentinels and guides have existed since the time of the cave and that yet history went pretty much along the same path. It's unlikely that that would be true. <laughs> Let's be real, okay? Um, sometimes authors will give some broad brushstrokes about a few things that are different, but for the most part, we let history remain intact in these kinds of stories so that the audience doesn't isn't like completely ungrounded in in the contemporary setting. And also, who wants to rewrite all that fucking history? Right, it's exhausting. But when you change something so fundamental, like guides, remember? Yeah, right. <laughs> we we really rattled the fuck out of that. Um, <laughs> it's terrible. But when when you have um, when you have a piece of world building that makes it difficult for the audience to continue to suspend their disbelief around that, it's like, well, but if that were true about guides or if that were true about sentinels, there's no way the world history would have gone the same way. It's just, it, it makes it too implausible. Um, then, then you've taken your world building a little bit too far. And it really, really isn't appropriate for a short story format. I mean, if you want to write an epic and you want to rewrite world history, go for it. I just don't have that energy. <laughs> I'm too old. <laughs> I'm too old to be right rewriting world history. That's my line and I'm sticking to it. I mean, you would have to write, I mean, it, it, so you write like 400,000 words of world history. Then you can sit down and write your 20K story. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well then my point stands <laughs> I'm too old and all the people older than me agree we're art all too old um, it's true that most people don't have a comprehensive knowledge of world history but I'm pretty sure Eddie Azard does I have absolute faith that his, <laughs> his world history knowledge is on point considering how many of his comedy tours were about world history <laughs> but there are events in history that you could inadvertently um we we actually had a whole podcast on the star where we talked about um the psionic well and how um and creating um a universe from the ground up and what would happen and like you know what would create psionic wounds um in the psionic plane that would uh what was the where, where it, it it got difficult yeah, it did 
I mean, because it was like, okay, so if we said that a whole bunch of people dying at once caused a psionic wound that opened up the psionic plane that created whatever they created, then w- then which event in world history was it that did it? And, we did, and why didn't we did the others do it? And then what would happen if a whole bunch of people died during World War II? Would, it, would the rift get bigger? And it was just like... And it rippled. It's- the never-ending ripple, and you have to eventually you come to the conclusion that certain things wouldn't happen in a psionically active society because you'd be hurting each other. So, yeah, that's why the suspension of disbelief around world history events is really important in a fandom like the Sentinels, particularly the Sentinels and Guides are known trope, because if Sentinels and Guides have always existed, realistically the world would have gone differently, especially honestly. Especially I mean, if if the um, um, especially if male male pairings were common in the Sentinel Guide. Honestly, I think that if you um, if you want to set your, it was just better to use a whole new world than to try to rewrite the the, the history of Earth. I mean, because it's just like because you have to start accounting for this and, that, and what happens if sentinels and guides prevent world war two or world war one think about how many people died in those two world wars that would now be alive or would have been alive lived had children their children had children and you're talking about millions upon millions of people well, but I don't. I think that if Sentinels and Guides have existed, I think you go further back, right? I think right. the construction of the United States would have been completely different. I don't think slavery would have happened because how do Sentinels and Guides not consider? How do they let that atrocity happen right there? Right. You know? I mean, it just doesn't it, make sense. What you have to do in that particular instance is um, have there be precious few Sentinels and Guides. Yeah. So, I mean, there's things you can, if you want to rewrite world history, you can, but we do, what happens is people just kind of come to the table willing to suspend their disbelief that world events didn't change until you throw too much of a wrench into that suspension of disbelief with your world building. So you've got to walk that balance, right, of not jolting your audience right out of the story. Well, a lot of things would be very, very different, Shelley. I mean, if you think about the technological advancements Edie was just talking about coming out of the world wars, coming out of war in particular, war um, has shaped our planet and our technology and our society in ways that are, are would be difficult to take apart. Um, it could even be said that we probably would not have landed on the moon if it were not for World War II. So, yeah, there's a lot of things. We would probably world the world the, today in 2020, the world today without those wars having occurred would be a lot less advanced than. I mean, we're um, talking, I mean, I would take us back probably back to the 1800s. Yeah, you, we'd probably still be horse-drawn carriages kind of thing. So, it, you know, it is something that you have to think about. And, and it is so difficult to rewrite history and figure out how you would have gotten those technological advances that it is easier for some people to who want to not deal with that, especially if they have a hard time just letting it go and just hand-waving away that somehow world history didn't change. It's easier for them to do like what Kira said and just write a whole different world. And there are quite a few Sentinel and Guide sci-fi series where it's just set on another planet. 
Um, one of the first stories I ever read that used the term pride, this was back when this, I think the sentence was on the air, was a sci-fi story. Um, so I think the first time I heard it, I mean, I saw it was um, that earlier story where we were talking about the, the moon hunt or It's not that story, uh, somewhere around that story. I don't remember when that was written, but I think that was a bit after. I mean, when I saw it, not when, I, when it actually started happening in fandom. I, thought, I think yeah. I did read that sci-fi story where Jim is in... Jim's some kind of soldier? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I assume the word pride came out of the fact that Jim's um, spirit animal was a cat. It's not a big leap, you know. It's always, um, it's always, and I find it kind of like entertaining when people get really bent about something that is completely logical. It's like, who invented that? Well, it's not a big leap that the people, the sentinels in a group around Jim would call themselves a pride since Jim's spirit animal. And he is so associated with jaguars in that. Repeatedly, oh. it's it's the logical plate way to go with what is it called? Or where are they going to go to call it a wing? <laughs> Are you know if if Blair had been the central focus of the show, then it probably would have been a pack. A pack, yeah, absolutely. Someone asked me why wolf guides are so special and important. It's because Blair was a wolf guide, so to speak. I think I think a lot of writers do some sort of tribute to the wolf in some fashion in their stories because it is kind of homage to Blair um, because Blair was a complete badass and uh, really underappreciated by a lot of of the core um, Sentinel fandom. He was so victimized by a, <laughs> by a lot of people in fandom. It's just like. Come on now, to the point where the actor was like, could you give my character a break? And so when the when the actor is saying, hey, um, could you tone it down a little bit? Fandom. It's also on that, you know, when the writers of a show make fun of you for writing incest, maybe you've gone too far. <laughs> Just saying. Supernatural. I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're looking at you, Supernatural. But, you know, so, yeah, I mean, the Sentinel, when it, when it comes to the guide, I, I think just sit down and decide for yourself what your guide is going to look like in your story. Um, and not like... With specific character, but the guide itself. What is the guide? What is the principle of a guide in your universe? And once you've made that simple, not simple, but that, those foundational characteristics for a guide, then you can apply those characteristics and choices to the character you want to make a guide and see how it shakes out. Now, sometimes I can look at a pairing and say, okay, Sentinel, guide. 
sitting on guide. But other times I can be like, oh, well, he can be both. There are some characters that feel like both to me. Like I can make them either or. Um, I could never write John Shepard as a, uh, as a guide. I, I can't. I can read it, but I can't write it. Um, Tony Dinozo, I can write him as a sentinel or a guide. Um, I personally would probably write Tony Stark as a sentinel. Um, I can go either way. Obviously, I have. Yeah. I would not want to write Gibbs as either. Because I don't think he's emotionally healthy enough to be an online sentinel. And he doesn't have a... a, a, a no, <laughs> I, I just don't, I mean, can't. Um, I can write Jim or Spock in either role. Although I do tend to, for some, I really actually enjoy um, writing Sp Spock as a Sentinel, it's which is really crazy because I made him a guide for my story in July. So, um, Gibbs, I can go Gibbs. I can, I could, I can write Gibbs as an online Sentinel. But not late in canon. The later, I mean, you get past season two or three, and I'm just like, I just can't. I just can't. He's just his character changed a lot um, in the course between season four and season whatever. Anything after season four. I can write Steve McGarrett as either. Um. I struggle with Steve as a guide. I've read it a few times and I kind of, it always kind of head tilt over and go, really? Um, I mean, but I've only ever written him as a Sentinel, I think. Yeah. I'm not unwilling to give it a try, but I just kind of, I'm just kind of, it just doesn't quite resonate with me. Um, I can't see Ian Edgerton as anything but a Sentinel. Sentinel. Dom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In case you were wondering, <laughs> Ian Edgerton is a Sentinel all day long. <laughs> um, I could go either way with Derek Sentinel or Guide, but I have a hard time with Styles as a Sentinel, which is I know it's a little weird, but I just he seems like a guide to me. Well, Styles so, is really intuitive as a character, right? And it's just like yeah. I'm not saying I wouldn't read it, but I just don't think I'd write it. I don't think I would write Styles in a in a sentinel role. I just, it just doesn't resonate with me. And that when I'm writing, when I'm choosing how I'm going to position a character in a story, um, it has to do with, with how that resonates for me. The Tonys, I could go either way with either one of them, which is why, depending on the stories, depending upon which way I went with that. And the, the year I wrote them twice, which was send for the man and stick around. I flip flopped it just because I can see them either way. Um, I see John Shepard, hardcore as a sentinel i do not get the guide thing for him um to the point that i don't even want to read it i mean i can it, read it it's just not my favorite thing to read i just i, I feel like i don't know i it wasn't until i read him as a sentinel that he that it clicked for me the um the concept clicked for me now strawberries in summer is is actually a beautiful story um Rodney is a sentinel and John is his guide and John's never been tested. Um, and John smells like strawberries to Rodney and he doesn't know why. And so it's, it's a very sweet story, but again, it didn't resonate with me 
um, for John. And I didn't get comfortable with him in a SG, you know, Sentinel God Fusion until I read him as a Sentinel. And I was like, yes, fine. That's it. That, that's what I wanted. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's and the Strawberries one. in Summer is by Darkmoor, and it's on our archive of our own. And, um, Thank you, Lady Holder. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you just like I have actually read John um, as a guide. I've read him as a sentinel, um, and it's just the sentinel is my preference. So some things just don't click for you. I mean, and they can, it, is, it doesn't mean it doesn't click for somebody else. So it doesn't click for me. So I'm not going to write it. It's probably why it's why I would never write Steve as like a Steve McGarrett as a guide is because I just, it doesn't click for me. And so, and we have our way, we each have our ways of seeing characters. Um, and one of the reasons I write, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, one of the reasons why I write Denozo as being a guide most of the time is not because I see him only as a guide is because I, the people I tend to pair him with, I'm much more binary about. Um, right. So Tony Stark is one of the, one of the few that I could, now I could have written Derek Morgan as a guide or a Sentinel. Um, I actually think I see Derek uh, probably a little bit more as a guide than a Sentinel. I was probably swinging a little bit more in that direction, but that storyline was very specific to Tony coming online as a guide, not Derek. So actually wouldn't have worked with Derek. Um, so sometimes my story kind of puts him in that role, but sometimes it's just a matter of like, if I'm pairing him with Ian or McGarrett, um, certainly if I'm going to go crazy and pair him with um, Ibs, it's going to be, he's going to be a guide. Um, although I really enjoy writing him as a Sentinel. So. Um, so actually one of the I do tend to write guides as having extra abilities because I don't like guides that that just kind of help ground a sentinel senses. It's kind of boring. There are a lot of yeah, there are a lot, but there are a lot of writers who have written it very well and I've enjoyed the stories they've written, but for me as a writer, um it feels like guide becomes an accessory to the sentinel and it just bothers me so i don't i i want to give the guide some kind of empathic ability something that is theirs that gives them as much weight as the sentinel as much value to society as the sentinel i don't like the the the, um, the from a writing perspective there could most of the writers i enjoy who don't give the guides abilities they don't Enjoy their stories because they don't make the relationship unbalanced. But the potential for the unbalance is obvious to me, obviously there, which is that the sentinel is more important than the guide. So therefore, at the least, guide is disposable. Right, at least to society. Maybe not to the sentinel, but at least to society. So I don't, that's why I tend to write the guides. And a lot of times it's, there's a little bit of a fan and backlash in the way I write the guides and that I give them stronger abilities, the sentinels. And it is a little bit you know, me kind of reacting to the way guides, I've seen guides written, which is, you know, property or um, disposable or any of that kind of thing. But I guess I've really enjoyed, there's a lot of stories I've read in the Sentinel that 
the guides have no abilities. And when I enjoy them, it's because the writer doesn't treat the guide as less. And but it's really easy to see how it could go that way. And many writers do go there where the guide is less. And I think one of the ways to make sure that that's not even a potential in my world is to make sure their abilities are on par with the Sentinel. They're different, but they're both have abilities. They both have something. So I like the idea of, of a guide. I mean, I feel like, that one of the one of the ways that the show missed the boat was not exploring um, Jim's relationship with um, how do you say his name? Inchaka. Inchaka, yeah. And what Inchaka did for him in South America, like what was going on there? Oh, what Inchaka, Inchaka, we're, we're Inchaka. inverting the syllables. Inchaka, uh, Inchaka. Um, what happened there? What was going on there? What did he teach him? Um, what did he give Blair? Yeah, he passed in the way of the shaman. But what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. I know where babies come from. I don't. <laughs> Shut up, Abigail. <laughs> yeah, the, the the mysticism and the spirituality. I would like to have seen more of it, and I think that a lot of fan of a lot of the fandom would have because you see that explored repeatedly over and over and over again in stories. Um, and that's really a path you can take with the guide because the guide is so ill-defined in fandom. Canon. Canon. And fandom has tried to define the guide, sometimes in really ugly ways. Yes. But also, you know, the gatekeeping, I think, in the Sentinel fandom did more damage to the Sentinel fandom than anything else. Yeah. Than I age mean, or anything else because the Star Trek fandom was thriving before and after the movies. So you can't just talk about it not it, there being a lack of canon considering how popular the Sentinel fandom was. Um I think it really does boil down to the gatekeeping. Yeah, they tried to enforce or impose their view of canon and and what what your fanon should be as a result on people and i think it kind of it kind of imploded in a way the the sentinel fandom itself because people could still be writing in that core fandom but it's mostly fusions that are written now yeah and yes jim and blair often appear in other people in the in the fusion stories not always but often um if you if you know if you need a a high-level Sentinel guide to come visit. It's often Jim and Blair. Why not? Baked in. But you don't often see the other characters. I think it also might come down to the fact that people like me who, who got stung pretty badly by the fandom still want to write the Sentinel but don't want that attention. So they write a fusion in another fandom so they can play with the concepts and not have to deal with the bullshit that takes place in the Sentinel fandom. Yeah. But not, I mean, but I do think that fandom's kind of dispersed. I mean, I don't think it kind of really exists much as a, as an enforcement entity anymore. Um, so. Centralized. Honestly, it, it sucks what they did. It just it it sucks. Yeah, it does. 
And I think that they kind of kept the Sentinel fandom from taking off for a lot longer than it needed to. I think the fusion thing would have taken off like gangbusters a long time before it did if they hadn't been such twat waffles, you know? Um, it's interesting because there is kind of, there is also kind of like this thing, I, and I hadn't really thought about the fact that it's kind of this unwritten rule about sentinel fusions which is that jim and blair have to be the strongest sentinel guide in a sentinel fusion i got somebody said somebody wrote me about demons that when i had um dom and tony come online as the strongest sentinel guide on the planet that they felt like that was sort of like double birding you know or spitting in the face of 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 the the Sentinel franchise in general, that Jim and Blair weren't the top, top bananas. Um, <laughs> they weren't the top bananas in the awakening. And they, and in Sentinels of Atlantis, Jack O'Neill is, I mean, I, that, that, I, that's a spoiler. Um, well, it's not really a spoiler because, uh, at one point somebody asked Jack um, what he thinks his job is as a Sentinel. And he's like, I'm supposed to guard the gate. And he, so you supposed to guard earth. <laughs> yeah. So Jack O'Neill is actually the strongest Sentinel on earth in Sentinels of Atlantis. He just doesn't know it yet. I'll find out. Um but there, I think people have, well, or maybe it's the perception is, is that of the on-screen characters, um, Jim and Blair are supposed to be the, the strongest or whatever. But, and I have done that in a few stories where Jim and Blair are stronger than whatever Sentinel Guide I have the story. But I haven't even done all of them. But I think that they've, that in this particular case, I really called it out that, that Dom out by far and away outstripped any other sentinel on the planet and um i thought it was interesting because i hadn't considered that that was like a thing you were supposed to do i didn't like, know it was a thing either i found it today i was today's years old when i found that out <laughs> that you there's some sort of homage you're supposed to pay to the original fandom by making jim be the top banana i mean in the very first sentinel story i ever wrote he was just the alpha the alpha prime of, of of the pacific northwest and there was out there was actually literally an alpha prime of north america it doesn't make any sense in the sentinels or known universe that jim would come online and immediately be the most awesome best sentinel on the whole planet I mean, it's going to be somebody, but, you know, odds are it's not a new Sentinel. Someone who, well, I guess if. With no training? Uh, no, yeah. With no training? Yeah. No, it doesn't make any sense. But I always write it that you can't be a, a prime. You can't be, if you're not bonded. That unbonded Sentinels don't have any kind of function in a governance structure. So that's the way I always write it. But, you know, people can do it whatever they want. Um, but don't let that, don't, don't let that that part of the sentinel fandom tell you what to do no it's like you know we have had it's come up occasionally we sometimes people have spirit animals actually physically speak um and it does i can see how that does kind of evoke demons from his dark materials but it there's nothing that says you can't have your spirit animals have speech nothing at all there's nothing in canon that says that spirit animals can't speak and we had somebody get some grief one day 
a from a reader that she was doing her sentinels and guides wrong because she had spirit animals who spoke and like do you, and, and they basically told her she didn't know sentinel guide canon i'm like well there's nothing in there's barely anything about sentinels and guides in canon um and spirit animals in canon so she's saying is that she thinks it's a fanon rule and that you you know that, that this person had broken it oh how dare they except fanon is implicitly not a rule if it's fanon <laughs> it's implicitly not a rule <laughs> but you will get that if you if you veer away from what people think of as the lane the 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 typical fan and the, the concepts that are the most important for most people, they will tell you you're doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong. As people, long as your story is internally expectations for a trope, uh, no matter what the trope is, they have expectations for it. They come into your story, they expect a certain thing. If you label it ABO, they expect a certain ABO dynamic shit thing to happen. If you say you're a Sentinel fusion, they expect da 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 da. And when they don't get it, they're going to complain. And it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to um, internalize those complaints or tell them to fuck off. I go with fuck off. It works out better. <laughs> Just the, the double bird is always a solution. Just as long as your own story is internally consistent. Now, you don't, no, you don't have to put up with... It doesn't matter how inconsistent your story is. You don't have to put up with anybody's flames. You know, you don't have to. Um, but your goal as a writer is your story to be internally consistent. That you aren't contradicting yourself. Do a better job than canon. <laughs> have your character involved in a military action years before they were actually in the military. I came up earlier on another channel trying to sort yeah, out don't don't have your character be in beirut as an active duty military person in 1982 when they were born in 1973 I mean, i'm just they saying get, they weren't actually in the military right they just got lost somehow in beirut um timelines are important it's it's physically impossible. <laughs> He's a military prodigy. <laughs> it is physically impossible for a man in his thirties to have been to have completed both SEAL training and medical school. Well, in his thirties, you're breaking that for me. I'm I'm not getting anything out of you. I'm thinking about the timeline. It's. Can you still not hear me? I can hear you now. Okay. So it it's it's tight. I mean, but they'd have to have done no medical school practice. They'd have had to have left medical school. I mean, literally like finished their residency <laughs> and gone straight into SEAL training, which because you have to hit SEAL training before you're 28. Right. You have to start SEAL training before you're 28. And it's about two to two and a half years to finish all of it. So, so if they started if they got, do you have to do undergrad again in medical school? No. You, have to, you have to do a pre-med, right? Well, it, it, it depends upon what your, what your undergraduate degree was. So, okay, they start college 17, 18 years old. 
They're in medical I conceivably, school. you know you're going to want to go be a doctor. You're not going to take something frivolous from your undergrad. Right. So they're doing like biology or some kind of pre-med program. Pre-med program, yeah. They go year-round. Depending on class availability, let's say they graduate in three years. So then it's four years of medical school. Mm-hmm. So that's seven years ish. That's um, if you do there there isn't yeah, if you do the accelerated undergrad, yeah. Yeah. And not all medical schools will take the accelerated undergraduate. Well, Doogie Hauser is a genius. We're we're talking about just a regular person. So that's not gonna be helpful. Let's see. The thing is, is Doogie Hauser is completely and utterly unrealistic because I don't see how he ever could have qualified for medical malpractice insurance. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the <laughs> issue is, the issue is, let's say you started your undergraduate. So you 18. Could, 18 is 17. Can't, can't. So you'd have to be 17 and then seven, you'd be 24 when you finished medical school. And then assuming you did only three years of residency doesn't see an internship you would have except okay so let's say he actually does two or three years of residency so he's looking at 27 years old and he's decided he's going to join the navy at 27 years old um and he has a degree i mean he's a he's a fucking medical doctor right um so the wait list on getting into seal training and to qualify for SEAL training. I think by the time he got through that process, he'd be 30. And then he wouldn't qualify. Well, they can do... I mean, I did a lot of research into SEALs. You're supposed to be 28 to start training. It, that's the maximum age. Um, but they will do waivers for certain exceptional circumstances if you're 29 or 30. That's it. 29 or 30. Most people complete their residency around the age of 28. And then you're going to go boot camp and if you're going to go to boot camp you're going to considering you're a medical doctor you're going to go to officer training school right you're going to go right into officer yeah so you do boot camp officer training school i don't know the seals would care about getting a medical doctor i honestly don't know that they would care i mean so the point is it's conf- it's conflicting because if you've got a medical doctor, do you really put them on a SEAL fire team? I mean, what takes precedence, right? Being a SEAL or being a doctor? It's it's like the height of each thing. You, you've reached the height of, of training as a medical professional, and you've reached the height of military training. And it's, almost in con- and it's almost in conflict, and it's like, how do they deploy that person? I didn't think it would be a waste of resources to put a medical doctor on a SEAL team. I mean, they would be like, mm, well. I, I just don't think that they would actually want a medical doctor that's going to function as a medical doctor to go through SEAL training. I agree, no. I don't think a Navy would accept a, a doc- medical doctor as a combat specialist. It's just. The point being is when your reader stops to do the math <laughs> on your character's age and career. <laughs> You've got a problem. If they stop and think, you know what? 
I don't think that they could have actually gotten that six foot four man in the hatchback of that. How did they get that dead body in that car? <laughs> I just don't think that happened that way. <laughs> and yes, yes, I have been there and I had done that. I was reading a book once and I was like, the bad guy had a tiny car. His victim was like 6'4 and weighed 300 pounds. And when he moved the body, and when they moved the body, it was in rigor. I'm thinking to myself, that's just, just not, that just didn't happen that way. <laughs> There's just no way that happened. I got so bent around the axle about them putting this dead body in this pinto. A pinto, come on. <laughs> Do they not know what a pinto is? I don't think they did. I couldn't get myself into the trunk of a pinto. I'm not six foot four. <laughs> If he was strapped to the roof, he's really fucking obvious. Um, but you don't ever want your reader to be so thrown out of the story by your facts that they're double-checking them. Now, sometimes I have been thrown out of the story by somebody's facts, and I double-checked them, and I'm like, huh, that actually is right. And then I'm kind of impressed, and I go back. Um, but, but often it's like, you, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Close the book. <laughs> most of the time, it's just, it's like, no. If I'm thrown out, it's because it's wrong. It's like, no, that's not the way that works. Um I read, this is a tan, this is totally a side. I was reading the story once. I, I couldn't get past it. I couldn't get past it. It's a stupid weather thing. But the whole premise of the story, because it was sort of an isolated trap thing, trapped by a blizzard. They couldn't leave the house for a week thing. Except the story was set in Berkeley. <laughs> Berkeley. It just, there's no blizzards in Berkeley ever, ever. While there might, like, twice in history have been snow on the ground, it, like, melted by noon. There's, like, no. No. It was just, <laughs> I, I couldn't get past them. Like, because I kept thinking they're in Berkeley. How are they snowed in? It doesn't make, is this the day after tomorrow? Is there been a natural disaster? <laughs> and isn't that a bigger deal than the fact that they're stuck in this house together for a week? Shouldn't they be trying to walk out and try to find other survivors? Is there a polar vortex over their apartment building? <laughs> <laughs> It's like, Jesus, no. So you can just, and it's the same thing with your Sentinel Guide world, but you don't want to jar your reader with your crazy. So if you've got an idea and you think it's never been, it's never been written before, you don't think anybody's written this idea and you're running it by your friends, there's a few things you want to keep an eye out for. There are the people who will tell you, no matter what you say, that you should do that. Absolutely. Go for it. No. <laughs> if you don't have a voice of sanity that you can reliably go to and run your ideas by, find one. <laughs> because toxic enablement is a thing. Your friends don't think that they're toxic enablers. But if they're telling you no matter what you say to go for it, they're toxic enablers. That's just the way it is. These are the people who somebody writes a book, they hand it off to them and they go, oh, honey, this is the best thing I've ever read. And the person submits it to a publisher and the publisher says no. And they go, but all my friends and family love it. Well, you need less toxic enablement in your life, dear. <laughs> pro tip. And then this is a legit pro tip I'm going to give you guys. 
do not ever in your cover letter to an editor or a publisher say agent. the words agent say the words my family and friends love it I mean it don't 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 put that in your cover letter Because they don't give a shit if your family and friends love it. <laughs> really, they don't. And odds are, if that's all you can come up with is if your family and friends love it, is sitting there going, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> because what are your family and friends going to tell you other than I love it? I think they're going to crush you by telling you it's, it's, it's crazy or whatever. But the point is, is that when we have our bounce buddies or whatever and we're running ideas, you need somebody who will rein you in. Not squash, not squash your dreams. Okay, this is not about stepping on your ideas and telling you they're crap. This is about someone who will go, okay, I think that's a good idea, but have you considered the ramifications of if that were true? You know, if guides spontaneously grew wings the moment they came online, what would the repercussions of that be? Well, fashion you know? would be different. <laughs> Sure, surely, surely. Would they actually be able to hide? Because you've got two concepts. You've got guides suddenly become befeathered the minute they come online, and yet somehow your guide is hiding the fact that they're a guide. How are they achieving this with six-foot wings on their back? You see my point? You need somebody who will rein you in and say, <laughs> does this make sense? As opposed to a room full of people that says, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I'm sitting there reading this going, lies? That does not sound fascinating. It sounds ridiculous. <laughs> well, no, not I all the actually... city was underwater. And also, Atlantis wasn't made of a traditional metal. We don't know what Atlantis was made of. So we don't know what the materials of Atlantis would have done when exposed to salt water. Because we don't know shielded. what Atlantis is made of. It's also shielded. Not all of it, yeah. But most of it was there shielded. Was a... But I would imagine there is some But the shield was gradually shrinking over 10,000 years. But I would imagine there was some deterioration on the other side of the city. And that could be a plot point, actually. You know, they go underneath and look at the bottom of the city and they go, oh, <laughs> we're about to have a giant hole. <laughs> Um, yes, aliens is a great it is a great lampshade, but aliens is a great lampshade. But, you know, when you're when you're having your ideas for your your sentinel guide, your sentinel world building and your your psionic plane world building, whatever it is, it helps to have a bounce buddy or somebody you can run ideas by. The person who will check you, who is encouraging, but will kind of go, but does that actually make sense? Um, like, or I wish there had been somebody on the set of SG One that would have asked that question that got asked in the Wormhole Extreme episode. So if he can walk through walls, why doesn't he fall through floors? Right. <laughs> I mean. If, if, yeah, if you encounter somebody who thinks the world is, the, the, the planet Earth is less than 5,000 years old, ju just walk away. Just, just, just walk away. For a variety of reasons. Number one, they're crazy. <laughs> Number two, you cannot have a conversation with somebody who thinks the world is less than 5,000 years old. 
or that the planet is flat. You you can't have a conversation with these these kinds of people because they're not rational. I actually deeply long to have a conversation <laughs> with a flat earther. I really, really. You want a genuine flat earther? A genuine. A genuine one who yeah. really believes it. I actually, you know what I really want? I really want one of the ones who believes the earth is shaped like a donut. <laughs> is it, is so, a turtle a must or is it optional? No turtles. I want I want a donut earther. I really, really do. Because I want them to I want to ask the question repeatedly, but why aren't we looking out at the expanse of space and seeing ourselves? If I'm on the inside of a donut, shouldn't I be seeing the other side of the donut? I want to know how that how that is. I think we all live on the outside of the donut. The pictures of the donut earth show landmass on on the on the inside of the donut. Hmm. Maybe the clouds hide it. There is. There is a flat earth theory, the extension of the flat earth theory that that's tried to account for the curved horizon by saying that the earth is shaped like a donut. And, you know, I, I asked I asked somebody online once, and I don't know if they were a genuine flat earther or not. I was like, so why is the earth flat, but all the other planets are not? Maybe they are. They didn't Maybe. have an answer. They I, actually, the, um, um, their answer was go, you know, go fuck yourself. So I have to assume that they but didn't mind, actually have an answer to that question. But mind you, this is not a desire to have a serious conversation with somebody. This is because I really want to troll the fuck out of somebody who's a donut. <laughs> <or something. laughs> but you know, honestly, the best, the best argument against the flat Earth, beyond all the astronomical amount of evidence we've got from having been in space and fucking seeing the planet. Um, etc. Look at that. She found one. Um, is that if the earth was flat, there would be nothing on it because cats would have knocked it all off. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Can't believe Lady Holder found the donut earth picture. <laughs> That is just <laughs> someone found one of the bite out of it. That is hilarious. <laughs> Edie, you win. But no, I mean flat earthers are astounding. I also met some um, a man once who didn't who, um, who thought the on um, the moon landing was faked. That's an that's a really impressive mass conspiracy. Or is that I mean, because like I said, but. I said, okay, you acknowledged during that time that, you know, Russia and the United States were enemies, right? Deep enemies? And he was like, yeah. And I said, the whole Cold War and all that shit. I said, do you honestly think that Russia would have let us lie about going to the moon? Don't you think they would have told on us? <laughs> For making it up if we had made it up. I really do think Russia would have called us on it. <laughs> I feel like Russia would have been like, hey, hey, they fake that in a studio in Hollywood. They didn't go up there. We've been watching. I mean, we have a no gift policy, but I, I'm going to give you a pass on that one, Ellie, because it's funny as fuck. <laughs> 
asteroid strikes flat Earth and knocks the dinosaurs into space. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> that Earth looks like a record. Does anybody else think that looks like an LP? It does look like an LP. Does that make it rock and roll? I think it does. Yeah. I do think it does. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, actually... so, but you know, but when he first told me he didn't believe that the moon landing had happened, I laughed out loud in his face because I thought he was joking. I had no idea he was serious. So he was already deeply offended by the time I asked him if Russia had kept our secret. <laughs> well, I thought the flat earth thing was a joke, like something that a satire site came up with. Mm -hmm. I was I was actually sad and disillusioned that it wasn't a joke. I thought it was I a mean, hysterical you know, joke, but ancient flat earthers, okay, I get it. You didn't have science, you didn't have telescopes, you didn't have NASA. I mean, you had telescopes kind of, not really. I mean, what's sad is it took so long for somebody to observe that ships disappeared beyond a horizon and therefore the earth must have been curved. I mean, it's a little we're a little slow on the uptake, but okay. So, but today, in today's society. Uh, it's like the, it's a waterfall. It's like a, a cosmic waterfall. A cosmic waterfall. <laughs> we're watering the universe. I don't know where we get our water from, but, you know. We must have a really good supply. Where does Asgard get its water? Because its water just seems to fall into space, doesn't it? It's magic. Magic. <laughs> There's a lip at the edge holding it in where it's shallow dish. Or one of those like infinity fountains. We're <laughs> <laughs> an infinity flat earth plane thing. Wow. We're self-watering. <laughs> anyway. That's probably one of our stranger tangents. But honestly, it, it does it does well down to this. When you when you have your reader asking questions. That means a couple of things. You've done something really silly that you cannot lampshade. You've created some inconsistencies. You've not bothered to lampshade. Um, you made the earth flat by accident. You know, shit happens. <laughs> yeah, it does. So you just need to be consistent and mind your ripples. Ripples are everything. And don't create individual circumstances on your character that imply they, app they apply to all characters of this sort without acknowledging that you're going to have some major ripples if you do. Because if Jillian said that all guides come online practically feral, and they emote all over the place. And they cause mass massive migraines everywhere. It is unlikely that guys would just be allowed to run around being themselves. Because if a god event like that could do that to people and it could take people down all over the city people who are driving because what if like i mean so you don't want your 
guy to like cause people to have seizures or and that that'd be something that's common no yeah it has to be really a one-off and that society thinks the benefit that you know guides and sentinels have to society is enough that these occasional oddities these occasional traumatic events that happen are just part of life uh but it's rare it's something that they do their best to prevent from happening and that guides are you know but if you put every guide as a potential or keg, you know, so to speak. Guys are going to, you know, if once you're identified as latent, you're going to be shipped off to a place to until they see if you're going to come online or not. It's just, it, it would be ugly. It would be ugly. So you have to just, extreme circumstances can be a very um, good plot device, right? Like something extreme and out of the norm has happened to your character, but it has to be extreme and out of the norm. Otherwise, if it's happening to everyone, that would be that would be bad. It wouldn't make, and it wouldn't make a lot of sense. Who would want to be a guide? Um, I just feel like at this point, it wouldn't be, I mean, I think that we'd have got caught by now if we'd fake the moon landing. Just saying. Yeah, with actual proof. Then maybe they could have gotten away with it for a couple of years, but at this point, I think somebody would have told Yeah. Um. So somebody had asked, there had actually been a specific question about um, having somebody wanted to know about, they didn't want to write their guides as just a stable hours or the Sentinel and talk about how to do that and their roles specifically. Um, so we could get some examples of different kinds of abilities that guides could have. Um, well, the standard is empathy. Empathy, yeah. Now, what that what does that mean? The question is, what can you do with somebody with empathy? Well, there's actually, I think, a lot of things. Um, I would think empathetic people would be. You could have a whole field of mind healing, you know, psychotherapy and medicine around people who can actually help with empathic damage, or um, that because I would imagine people even even people who didn't have abilities could be damaged um, empathically. Uh, especially it's like tra through traumatic circumstances or whatever. Um, I have in Journey Home, I have a lot more guides than Sentinels. And in that one, um, especially guides at the lower end of the spectrum, like, you know, I, have, I think I gave my scale of one to 10. And below level seven, um, we're particularly, we're well suited to professions that allowed them to use their empathy. They didn't have to. They didn't have to. But they sometimes we're drawn to fields like psychotherapy or social work or working with children, empathic healing, um, that kind of thing, because they had an ability that they could channel in that direction that actually was very tangible and very beneficial to society as a whole. Um, these are quick. Um, There's also the, the use of uh, psionic energy um, and what that what that could mean. Not necessarily does, but what it, that could mean. Um, it could be a variety of psi force events from psionic yeah. energy. Telekinesis. Um, psychokinesis. Um some kind um, of extrasensory perception, um, astro projection. Yeah. 
Um, I've written in a couple of stories. I don't. I think the only one that's actually posted is the Steve Tony story. Everything they said, where Tony can actually wield psionic energy, literally like a weapon, like physical, tangible weapon. Um, I have another story that I have plotted where it can actually physically, it's physically visible that the energy manipulation um, is so extreme that it's like physically a visible force that it can be used. Um, so you could actually write your 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 guide is like a real badass on the fr on the on the on the battlefront, like that they can wield psionic energy like a weapon. Oh, you know what? Second, what I just read, I, I just I'm just gonna let it. I'm just gonna I'm gonna let that sit there. Got nothing. I'm going to explore astral projection, I think, in um, November. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, you could also have guides having a certain effect. There's also, I think, um, guide aura is a very pro pro uh, prominent uh, and common trope used where guides like put off some kind of aura, like whether it's restful or sometimes people do it se like a sexual aura. Sometimes people kind of a calming Um Sometimes um, I write. I wrote in one story where you could like two stories actually, where guides can some guides, not all guides, but some guides can like compel people to like speak the truth. Um, it's sort of like a shaman ability. So I mean, you can kind of come up with an. And I typically think you want it to be an ability that works in the favor of your story as to what they can do. Um, I mean, what good does it do you to have a, a, you know, a guide who can construct a blade of psionic energy and decapitate people if they're never going to be in any kind of confrontation? But also, I think that it's also important to think about them, the everyday applications of who they are as a person. Um, you don't, like, one of the things that I worked to do in The Awakening was to create a situation that when Blair came to Cascade, he wasn't going to be Jim's accessory. And I built into the, I, I begged it into the world building that guides tend to gravitate towards careers. Um, guides and sentinels both tend to gravitate towards careers that complement each other. There's a little bit of predestination there. Just a little bit, not a lot, because Jim actually had two matches. Um, and um, Blair followed his instincts. And educated himself into, into a situation where he, when he met his sentinel, he was very compatible with Jim across the board. So that was my way of lampshading the fact that they, that they could work together easily with no problems and da 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 da. Um, so when, you, when you're putting your guide down in your universe, um, don't give them a throwaway job. Now, unless that's part of your... Um plot device. I mean, maybe that's the source of, you know, conflict in your story is them figuring out how to come together because maybe they're not compatible. I mean, Kira had a different plot, but your plot could be, you know, a military sentinel and a civilian guide. And how do they work that out? What does that look like? Um, depends on the kind of story you want to tell. But if you're wanting to tell a story of two military sentinels going into a military sentinel and military guide going into battle together, you, you know, 
would want to have your guide be military minded. You would, I mean, at least I wouldn't want to write a guide who was like a pacifist being thrust into that kind of situation. It would feel uncomfortable to me because you right. wouldn't want to subvert the guy's wish, guide's wishes and will um, to make them compatible with the Sentinel. Um, I tend to shape my characters um, for my plot. I'm a plotter. Yeah. And then I let my plot impact my characters. And then I let my characters impact my plot. But I start with my plot. So when I put two characters down into my plot, um, I need to know that they're, that they're going to work within the frame that I've put together. I see, in Imperfect, um, optimally, Tony and Derek would work together. Um, but they didn't know. Tony wasn't willing to just be a consultant guide for Derek and stop being an investigator. Um, they would have gone and worked separate careers if they'd had to, if they'd had to, but certainly the goal was to, them to work together. And so Tony was like, well, if I can't qualify as a profiler, which of course he was going to, if I can't qualify to be a profiler on your team, you know, I, th then what do I do? What do we do? And Derek was like, well, you know, team one, which is um, terrorism and the BAU um, interested in having Tony work for them already. And Derek would have been willing to leave team four, which is crimes against adults and go with Tony. He's willing to follow him because he could, he could make that transfer. And it was a place that was their backup plan as if Tony couldn't qualify to work as a profiler on team four, the backup plan was that they would go to team one together, both working as profilers on team one. So, I mean, in that case, they had to come to, there was a little bit part of the plot was the back and forth about how are they going to work this out um, to work together if they even can. And ultimately, of course, they worked it out and they did wind up on the same team. Um, but it is an issue with, um, it, it was going to be, it was set, it was set up in everything they said. It was set up as a, future point of contention that Steve and Tony might not be able to work together because Tony is not eligible to really work in law enforcement as a crow guide. And then that was supposed to be explored in the sequel, how they were going to resolve that, but I only got the prologue of the sequel done because, you know, I was sick for three months. Um, Sucked ass, man. Yeah, I just, I just skipped March, April, May. Where'd they go? I don't know. Um, <laughs> she slept. Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in bed. I mean, there were many she days. I'm like, it. There were many days. I'm like, I'm gonna sit up, not because I feel better, but because my ribs ache from laying in this bed so long. Wow, bless your heart. And I mean that in, in a good way, not in a terrible, not in a you're an idiot way, right? <laughs> I meant that legitimately. But usually I want my Sentinels and Guides usually to work together. There are some circumstances where I might not have them like directly working together. Um, but they would be available to each other if needed. One of the stories I'm writing for July, they won't directly work together all the time. But they actually, there isn't a reason for them directly work together all the time. You know, I have a Sentinel who's not in the field anymore. Why does he need a guide hanging off of his shoulder, his elbow all the time? It, he just wouldn't. That's where our guides are relegated to the role of arm candy, and I just don't do that. So, um, thank you, Jeep. So, you know, it's just it, you got to figure out what it what it is you want to do, and if you want your sentinel guide to be working alongside one another, how are you going to get there? 
Um, are they going to already be in compatible fields? It's not such a huge stretch that they would be. And if they're not in compatible fields, then potentially that is your conflict in your story is how do you get them working together? As like in Demons, or in Stick Around Demons, Tony Stark didn't want to be a guy because he had no interest in it. It was not that he had a problem with being a guy. It was just he had other things he wanted to do. He didn't want to be a guide until the person he wanted was a sentinel. It was sort of a backward kind of approach. But that was more there. like a don't touch my stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's well, fine. <laughs> That's mine. What's wrong with you? Well, I don't blame him. I get it. Don't touch my stuff. How are they able to how they're able to work together, of course, is in their superhero gig, right? It's not in their certainly not in Tony Stark's job as a you know sort of CEO of a high tech company. They're they're working together is through the their Defenders Initiative, or whatever the hell I called it. Um, <laughs> that certainly wasn't where they started. It wasn't even the intent when they started. It's just what it grew into, um, where that went. Let me go check to see if we've got any other questions that are about guides. One thing I would say about writing a um, corrupt sentinel and guide, having done it, I wouldn't do it again. Because it creates world, it um, it creates um, implications for your world. Um, especially if you give your guide a lot of abilities, it, it creates this really dark circumstance. Like, yes, okay, it's fine for a sitting on guide to be an asshole. Great, fine, that happens. There's assholes everywhere. I I fully expect there to be asshole sentinels. If, honestly, based on canon, I expect most Sentinels to be kind of an asshole. <laughs> Just because the two we got in canon, one was kind of an asshole and one was definitely an asshole. So, you know, but it creates a circumstance where you have to ask yourself if guys are this corruptible and can be this fucked up then how does society trust them the way they're portrayed to be trusted in most fandom circumstances? And if they're not trusted, are they going to be collared and controlled? And, and then you, you get into the circumstances, are they government property now because they can't be controlled? Because they might be corruptible? You know, so it's like, it's a very ugly, deeply slippery slope. When you create somebody who's capable of telepathic and empathic abilities and then make them corrupt. Yeah. And, and the same thing with Sentinels, too. If you make Sentinels corrupt, especially Sentinels, I actually think the corrupt Sentinels is a bigger problem than the corrupt guide. Although corrupt guides are also a problem, you should be careful what you do with that and how you approach it. But the corrupt Sentinel, the big issue people worry about with Sentinels is privacy. And if you can't trust the world's secrets with almost any sentinel on the street, well, then what? If society can't trust with the tribal protectors, what do you have? You have a society where sentinels and guides are controlled 
and there's technology in place to control them. Or just outright killed. Or they're outright killed, yeah. So the world building I did for that Star Trek story, that Star Trek Sentinel fusion, um, the background was that they kept the the world kept fucking over got Sentinel's guide so much that um, so often that and at, at one point they just didn't value guides. They felt like guides were the whole thing with Khan. The eugenics experiments were about trying to build a Sentinel that didn't need a guide, and what they did in that was just ruin their ability to bond not cut off their need for a guide they just prevented them from being so these sentinels were like Khan had all the protective instincts about guide and the desire for guide but they actually couldn't form a bond with one because they'd been damaged genetically that's disgusting um, right and so they had to cut that off they launched all these guides off on a base on the, all these sentinels basically off on a prison ship um but the sentinel guide community didn't have any trust so basically there was a you know leap back off and leave alone well in the forming of the federation they went to and in my world building i have this be like jim and blair who approached that the federation was being formed and they wanted sentinels and guides on board they just didn't feel like they could trust the, the Federation. They didn't feel like they could extend that trust again because they'd been burned by the world too many times. And that, you know, that most Sentinels and Guides never would reveal their abilities because they didn't trust the government. And that's when they approached um, the Vulcans about, we just need an out of here. And the Vulcans felt like, you know, this was another psionically active um, group of people and they were willing to help relocate them from earth and that basically all the sentinels and guides disappeared off of earth overnight and they were all taken by vulcans to another planet where they created their own society and sentinels and guides basically when the last shaman left earth there never was another sentinel guide on earth again until the destruction of vulcan when sentinels and guides started coming back online again because of the psionic damage an entire planet of psionically active people dying caused um the ripples it caused in the psionic rivers that fl run through the universe. So um, the story is basically about bringing Sentinels and Guides back to Earth. And, but, you know, I had to work up a whole backstory about I needed to have a different hook for what Khan was than just a mad eugenics experiment. So that's what I did. Um, but it's not pretty. And I think the ripples are obvious that there would be no trust and that they would leave if they got the chance. No, no, it's a, it's, I have plotted the story. I haven't written it. Um, I'm actually, it's one of my two stories I'm considering for this November. She hasn't written it, Sahara. We, we did a plot drift on it once though. Yeah, we did talk about it once. I kind of got myself wrapped around the axle. I did actually, I did start some writing in the sense that I kind of got myself convinced myself I needed to write the story where they left Earth, but I I was really not enjoying that writing because it was just so bleak, bleak and it was kind of it was unhappy making and I just was making myself hate the idea trying to write that story and I decided then I realized I'm not interested in writing this and I need to take a mental break from it so that I can actually write the story I'm interested in writing. So I said I plotted two stories for November. Um this one and an MCU story. So I don't, the Star Trek MCU, I'm, I'm not certain which way I'm going to swing yet, but it's definitely a possibility. Let's see. 
Um, now, I did kind of um, skirt the edge of where I'm comfortable with a guide abilities in Primus. And that was because um, it's just because of the scene where, where Tony is able to force someone to do something. Not just, it, it even forcing somebody to tell the truth is a little bit pushing my own personal boundaries. But he's able. That for me? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Better? Yeah. As you were you were breaking that for me, so hopefully better. I'm, I, I said, yeah, I'll get it solved. It. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, it was the fact that he was like able when Ziva was going to attack him, he was able to force her to sit down and be still, and it pushed my own limits a little bit. But um, I kind of from my in my own mind, it was I kind of like dealt with it in a couple ways. One that she was about to attack him, so it was sort of a self defense mechanism that he was forcing her to not do that. Um, but also is that this type of guide on the hunt, there are, I did write, they're incredibly dangerous. You're not supposed to interfere with them. It's actually a law. They're very rare. And when a Primus guide is hunting, you do not get in their way and mess with them because they will tell you to sit your ass down and you will have no choice but to comply. Um And when they say, I'm going into the Pentagon, you just go, okay, <laughs> sure. Um, can, and when they say, and when they say, General O'Neill, I'm getting on your spaceship and you're going to take me to another galaxy, it's just going to go, okay. <laughs> because it's so baked into the culture that you don't get in between a Sentinel, a Primus guide and what they want. Um, and he wanted this really hot Satidin in another <laughs> galaxy. And so he was going to have it. Uh, <laughs> Don't get in my way. But I kind of, I kind of, I did have to like put a lot, quite a bit of thought into how I felt about that ability. Um, somebody asked me if it, the thing that didn't bother me was, was Tony's the way Tony people people just randomly confess to stuff around Tony, and it wasn't because, and I said no because that wasn't anything that Tony was doing. It's just the nature of the kind of guide he was, which is an Alpha Primus guide. Um. If you if you've done something you're ashamed of, an Alpha Primus guide is going. You're going to wallow in that shame around them. It's part of the aura they put off. Not that they make you do anything. It's just it's sort of like being around your mother when you know you shouldn't have done something. <laughs> Which is why people would just kind of come up to him and start randomly confessing to things. <laughs> like I'm the one who stole Doctor Doctor McKay's coffee. I I know I shouldn't have done it, but it's what happened. <laughs> And it's because that's just the kind of guide. And he's so he wasn't forcing way. them to confess. They could have ran away. <laughs> they they didn't have to give in. Nope. He wasn't making it. It's just that it's it's an effect of the aura of it's like being around your disapproving mother. You just want to purge yourself of all your sins. Like, I gotta confess. And I'm sure that some people did not confess to the shit yeah. that they had done. Sociopaths come to mind. <laughs> right. I don't give a fuck what you think. If you're really an awful person, you're not going to care that your mother disapproves. But then but. some might have confessed to avoid, like, to get it over with. Because they were going to get yeah. caught. Too. Because <laughs> Tony's also a really good investigator. But the more likely thing to happen is that Tony would walk in the room, people would burst into tears. Um, <laughs> he'd be like, 
And of course he knows if somebody starts randomly crying around him, he knows they have a guilty conscience. He just doesn't know why this is happening. He doesn't find out why it's happening until Ronan explains it to him. So what have you done? <laughs> Go to the ground place. Do you want to talk? Do you mean, do we need to talk about why you're feeling this way? <laughs> I tell you what, just, just, Go to your supervisor or your superior officer and tell them what you've done. You'll feel better. I'll feel better. One of those is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you to determine which one. <clears throat> yeah, and there was one who confessed about something he was thinking about doing. And uh, I don't remember who asked him, what are you going to do about it? And Tony's like, we don't have a pre-crime unit. What am I supposed to do? Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, don't do that. <laughs> it reminds me of that scene in Kindergarten Cop where he catches that kindergartner eating the other people's lunches. <laughs> he picks him up. Why are you eating their lunches? <laughs> and I admit the people bursting into tears around Tony was a little bit a joke about Tony crying all the time and so many fanfics. <laughs> He's just like, oh. So it was kind of it was it's a little bit it's a little bit cracky in that aspect of it, but it was also like, why is this happening to Tony when it doesn't happen to other Primus guides? And it's because there hasn't been an Alpha Primus on Earth. In longer than anybody can remember because there hasn't been a need for one you would only need to have an entire pride of primus guides and primus sentinels if there was an immense threat like the race the wraith yeah he has a special holster to keep his tissues in so Um, so I did do some different things with the Primus Guide, which was like, in, in terms of the question about different things to do with the guides, um, that was different than the guards. The Primus Sentinels and Primus Guides both merge with their Sentinel, their spirit animal. It, once they come online, there's no, there's no spirit guide for them because they they merge and they take on part of that animal aspect. Um, I thought about having it be that eventually they can shift into their animal form, but I hadn't made a decision about that at the time that I wrote Primus. So, That's so cool. it's just, just <laughs> a merger. Um, I have a work in progress where their spirit animals are um, well, when a, when a sentinel or guide comes online, um, they manifest a tattoo and that tattoo is their spirit animal. And it comes out of their skin. I like that. I've seen the shift and heard about the shifting into their spirit guides. Um, I don't think I've seen the tattoo thing, but I really like that idea. That it, it's it's on their skin like that. Um, Rodney's did, is a dragon. Of course, Rodney's is a dragon. <laughs> if there's anybody whose spirit animal would be a dragon, it would totally be Rodney. On assuming, does he really though? Have you even ever spoken to him? Um, <laughs> but there is a um, so in Primus, they Primus guides hunt for their sentinels, they come online, they merge with their spirit animal, and they go and they find a sentinel. That's the first thing they're gonna, I'm gonna go find me a sentinel. So I was giving kind of a, something a little bit different with the guide mythology there. Um, 
And then premise guides are warrior guides. They're like they're they're a lot like sentinels in a lot of ways. They're like low level sentinels. They also have enhanced senses, enhanced strength, and they function side by side with their sentinels, basically on the front lines. So the primus guides that primus guides and sentinels that exist on Earth is they have a calling. It's like they come online and they're going to go somewhere. They are basically on the front lines protecting the tribe. Not necessarily at war, but it is a more dangerous life. And if there's a whole pride of Primus Guides, it's because there is an immense war to be fought to protect the tribe, which is why Tony is going to um, Pegasus. And he's going to put out the call for the, the his pride of Primus Guides because the first episode was The Hunt and the second episode was called The Call. And that got stalled out a little bit because I couldn't decide on the pairings. It's weird how these things stall us out, isn't it? Pairings. Pairings. I could. Yeah. <laughs> I could do that. You know um, what? There, there's a lot of things that I would uh, drift with with other riders, my bitches. Um, pairing is not one of them. For me, a pairing is a very uh, personal choice that I'm making, and I don't want anybody else's input. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's. I mean, it's just like. I mean, I'm willing to offer input up, but that's like that feels intrusive. Well, my my main pairing, I usually know where I want to go with that. Um, but these are more like who else are going to be the pairings in this pride? And it was like, um, mm, mm, I don't yeah. know. So. <laughs> So, but sometimes I've done some different approaches to, you know, guide abilities or the function of a guide and a pride or, um, I think there's been a little something, a little, I try to do something a little bit different in most of my stories, but not all of them. Sometimes you just want to sit down with an old friend and write a story. Yeah, you just want to write a story. It was just there's a sentinel, there's a guide, the guide's an empath. To me, bare bones is there's a sentinel, there's a guide. The guide has empathic ability. They forge a bond, an empathic bond. And they get story. it on. That's the bare bones. I can't see me doing less than that. I can't see me writing a guide who doesn't have empathy. And I don't see me writing a pairing that isn't bonded. The tattoo story isn't on EAD? No, I don't think it is. I um I have some uh conceptual problems with it that, that's why it's not on EAD it's um it's honestly in the end of it the only part that I like about it is the um, is the tattoo thing <laughs> I mean I've got over a million words in progress uh a lot of it will never see the live day because it'll be like mm, there's a good idea there there's like a bone one of those bones is really good. <laughs> and the rest of it sucks. Sometimes you write something and it just, you get to, you go, hmm, that was not my best not, idea ever. That's not what I thought. That How did I get here? Why are you like this? Why are you like this, Kira? <laughs> what have you done? I told you guys about this one before. There was that one I wrote where I went to bed thinking it was like the best sentinel idea I'd ever come up with. I woke up a few days later, I read that and I was like, what the fuck was I on? I don't think I've taken any illegal substances recently. <laughs> what was this crack I took? 
taking a really what bad batch of weed. Guy, what Coke? is this? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it was bad. It was bad. Like I reread it the next day and I went, oh, God. I can never let... I mean, I... It, I don't usually delete things I've written, but I was sorely tempted to delete that. It occasionally happens where I go, that just needs to go. I can't even look at this again. <gasps> I was tempted to delete that one because it was like, this is awful. I, but there was a, there was a, the beginning of it wasn't awful. The very beginning, but where it went from there, the, the idea behind it and where it went from that first scene. I was like, Oh my God, what was I on? I get here. And sometimes you'll like read a sentence and like, what the fuck did I mean? You keep looking at it. What the fuck did I mean? That that I think that's English. <laughs> it's just like there's like so many words missing in the sentence that it no longer makes sense. And you're like, I don't even know what it was supposed to mean. And I don't know what would fit in there. I'm just gonna delete the whole sentence. It it didn't matter. <laughs> Three weeks later, it mattered and you remembered. <laughs> oh wait, that's what that sentence was for. With Valerie Klingon. My freshman year of high of college, actually. Weirdo. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a single word. I don't either now, but I did I I did know quite a bit. Um I think that Vicious was another one I did that was really different guide world building, not so much different sentinel world building, but I did very different guide world building in that one. Uh, but that was more about the different spirit guides. Um, but the very different spirit guides necessitated a very different kind of guide to have and care for those teeny tiny little spirit guides. Um, that's the first guides. So I do not understand the preview images on some of these stories. I'm, I'm like going to get all up and investigating what the fuck is going they on don't my have, They don't have featured images. Well, that's so, just weird. So I'll the WordPress is picking the first image. So the, the first image that, that, that comes to in your post. That that's a bad first image, but I mean. Right. I, but it's probably part of your cast, right? It's like, um, it, yeah. um, it's a casting image. So yeah. it's picking up, it, it probably isn't even the first image. It's picking up one of your cast images because you don't have a um, featured image featured attached. Image. To, yeah. You know, and that's back when I had way too much time on my hands that I was putting those kinds of effects on a cast image. <laughs> I was like, look at that little cute little box you put on that. She put <laughs> it in a frame. I mean, Jesus Christ. Um, now we're like, fuck it. It's like all into a collage and move on. <laughs> right? Two years ago, I'd have been like, oh, I can't do a collage. That's so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, bring on the lazy. <laughs> because I was, gonna, I, was, I was in the midst of looking to see if we had any more questions about guys specifically. So somebody did ask, how do you determine who is the center of the guy? We talked about this a little bit. And what would it be like to flip the normal role? Um, flip it if you're comfortable. Yeah. But, and but, this is a big but. I don't suggest you do that in the challenge environment. But also, it, I wouldn't flip it just to flip it. Because if you're going to make a character or something very different than, like, how you, how you, even you perceive them, are you doing it just to be different? Um... Like, if you have a character 
um, canonically, who just kind of like by their very existence exemplifies everything that is a sentinel. And so everybody in their pet poodle writes this character as a sentinel. And you decide you're going to, yeah. And you decide you're going to write them as a guide. Are you doing it just to be different? Or are you doing it because you could really see that character as a guide? And I think you have to ask yourself that question because we've talked on other podcasts about originality for its own sake is, is not, it isn't anything. It just, it leads people astray. Very bad storytelling. Very bad. And there are stories I've read where I think this is just them like trying to be original for the sake of being original. And it's just, it's not good. It comes off contrived and forced and weird and awkward. And you might not even know why it's awkward, but it, you know, honestly, I've read fix sometimes like that. It made me deeply uncomfortable to read. Although recently I encountered a few things that made me want to shower afterwards, but that's different. <laughs> when something makes you anxious when you're right, when you're re- reading and you don't know why it it's like, why is this fucking with me so much? Because it's contrived and weird and badly lampshaded and writing Ian Edgerton as a guide would be completely and utterly out of character. And while I am all about exploring a character and expanding a character and having a character adapt and grow and adjust to your plot, there are fundamentals about your character that I think are important that you keep. And that's how we started this podcast, actually, in the pre-pre-show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about the fundamentals of a character and like, how far can you take a character before you literally have an original character that you're slapping a fandom name on it. And I actually did that in full view of everybody on Rough Trade when I tried to write synthetic and didn't realize until I was about 6 or 7k in what I had done. Because I put blinders on. I had this idea. I shoved these characters into this idea. I was really enamored with it. I did all this world building for it. And then I wrote original characters with fandom names. And it fell completely flat. And sometimes you can take characters pretty far out of. But you really have to. I think you have to really work on what is. No, this is my. This is my fallback example for taking a character really far away from their canon environs and having them ring true, which is Fate Protects Fools, Small Children, and Ships Named Valor by Sunrider. It's the NCIS character set in Star Trek universe where Gibbs is a Star Trek captain. Gig Tony is a, he's sort of a, he's a, He's an intelligence officer who becomes, I think, chief of security, maybe. I can't remember exactly what role he takes on. He becomes Gibbs. He's a, he is a trill, but his function is, I think he's Starfleet intelligence. And then he, it's a role. He, I think, I don't think he comes Gibbs XO, I think. He becomes his XO. But anyway, all the characters resonate as who they, as their character. Not, not Gibbs, the NCIS special agent, or Tony, the NCIS special agent, but that character resonated as Tony. Gibbs felt like Gibbs. And they felt like they belonged in the Star Trek universe, so they didn't feel like caricatures either. It is beautiful characterization work. Beautiful, beautiful character work. Um, so when you take a question, and that is a, the example I can think about how far you can take a character away from there, because that's pretty far from Mm -hmm. NCIS to Star Trek, that is a real stretch. 
And you can do it. You can stretch them far, but how far can you stretch them? When you take Harry Potter and you take him away from the magical world and you make him non-magical and you give him a different hair color and a different eye color and different parents and living in America and having born in America, is he Harry Potter? No. Is there anything about <laughs> Harry Potter that remains? Is it literally sometimes just green eyes, a green eyed character that is called, I don't know, Bobby Cullen. I don't, you know, I'm just saying that, you know, is there anything about this character that is anything like canon character? And so it's just something you have to ask yourself. And you have to be honest with yourself about what you're doing. Because in that circumstance, if you're doing that, you were basically trying to hijack a fandom to read your story. Because Bobby's not Harry Potter. But you're sure as hell going to label that fic Harry Potter. And people are going to click on it. Oh, look, Harry Potter living with the Cullens. Oh, that has nothing to do with Harry Potter. Doesn't look like Harry like he doesn't even have magic. He doesn't have magic. And I honestly won't read a Harry Potter story that doesn't have magic. That's the whole fucking point. You can occasionally, there are a few corner cases where you can get me to a teen wolf story where there are no werewolves. Okay. It, you can do it. I, I've never read a non-magical Harry Potter. I'm like what, what, why would I do that? Um, like somebody came to me to plot an idea where Harry was born a muggle, and I was like, "Did he become magical? <laughs> Some sort of apocalypse where is he, he is he gonna is he gonna eat a magical plant? What <laughs> is there some sort of major event that causes magic to spring up in certain people? No, he's just a muggle. I'm like, well, why is he a muggle if there's no magicals? Why is he called a muggle? Oh, there's still a magical world, just Harry's not a part of it. I can't plot this with you because all I'm going to do is poke holes in your story. <laughs> like, in why your plot. is Harry Potter magical? <laughs> I'm going to whine. <laughs> I want to be helpful, but all I'm going to do is poke holes. So you probably should find somebody who's more accepting of this premise. Um, I would never read it. No. But I also would not read a modern Hobbit AU. Unless, unless they were actually hobbits and dwarves, right? They're modern human. Like, think about it. Can you imagine, like, hobbits and dwarves have survived in the modern age? I mean, the world building would have to be really good. It's possible. Okay. I, could, I haven't okay. read it. I haven't, I haven't read it. I'm just saying I, it's the one example I could think of. But if it's an all-human hobbit AU that's set in contemporary times, I'm like... Nah, dog. It's like, the reader in <laughs> me recoils and goes, what, are you crazy? Um... I am really picky about my reincarnation fic. And I don't think I would want to read a modern Hobbit reincarnation because the one the ones I've seen end up in the BBC Sherlock, um, uh, where Bilbo is living with smog. <laughs> right. I can't. Right. I cannot. <laughs> Big no. Big no I'm for okay. me, dog. <laughs> I'm okay with Thorin and Bilbo, and I'm okay with John and Sherlock. Those are two things are fine. Can't cross the streams. <laughs> but they cannot meet. <laughs> nope. But it feels like a bait and switch. When people do that, it feels like a bait and switch. And there is like um every, there's uh Hugh, da Hugh Dancy and Mads Mickelson have been in a few things together. Uh they were in um 
King Arthur and then Hannibal. And I think, and when I say the other, the other thing I can think of is like, is it called Charlie Countryman or something like that? Anyway, so there's this thing. And reincarnation stories are pretty common um, where they were in the King Arthur time. Common being, King Arthur's a very small fandom. So common is probably a handful of stories, but it's not a big fandom. So there's some reincarnation stories. Um, out there where it's 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 tagged for both fandoms and both pairings where it's like both tristan and uh what was hugh dancy's role was he galahad lady hall will be able to tell us i think so gawain no he wasn't gawain no i don't think doesn't sound right Galahad. That's what I okay, Galahad. So there are stories that are both Galahad, Tristan, and the t- story is also tagged for um, Hannibal and Will. And it's because there there's elements of either remembering their past life or it's flashbacks between the two. And I get that. There are other stories, however, that have nothing to do with Hannibal. They're just Galahad and Tristan stories, or they're just the two the two characters from. Probably countrymen. Okay. They're tagged with Hannibal Will, even though Hannibal and Will and the Hannibal canon has nothing whatsoever to do with the story. There's no reincarnation. There's no soul thing, nothing. And it's because they're wanting to attract readership of the biggest fandom, which is Hannibal. So they'll tag their King Arthur story as. Okay, Bast. Bass says only Mads was in Charlie Countryman. Hugh was in a movie in the movie Adam and they pair their characters, Adam and Nigel, in it equals space dogs. How the fuck did that pairing end up being called space dogs? Okay, so that's it. So it's Adam Nigel or in the relationship. But in any case, there are Adam Nigel stories out there that will be that have nothing to do with Hannibal, that will be tagged Hannibal Will. And it's to draw the Hannibal Will audience in to reading that story. I know. I've clicked on them. And I've read well, them. Well, it's fandom hijacking is what it is. It is. It is. It is it's a bait and switch, too. Um, and I think that that's what you're doing when you take your character so far away from looking anything like canon, and then you slap a canon name on them. You've got an OC with a canon name on it. And... It, I think it's to, to catch that audience. So it does feel like you're bait and switching your audience. I don't like it personally. I, you do you. I, I'm not I'm not the fandom police, but it doesn't mean I don't notice your shitty behavior. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. As much as I tell you to ignore um, trolls and ignore readers who are mean to you, um, if you're going to do something like this, you should, you're, you can anticipate there are going to be people in your comment section who are going to tell you off. And I'm not saying you brought that shit on yourself. You kind of did. But you kind of... <laughs> but you brought that shit on yourself. Because honestly, that has nothing to do with your writing. It has everything to do with your tagging. And if you are an irresponsible tagger, well... And you know. your comment whoring. I mean, because really all that is is saying kudo whores. You know, it's like... You want attention, you want kudos, you want comments, so you're going to tag all these fandoms, even though they have nothing, fuck all to do with your story, because you want attention. And that is just, that's the kind of behavior, uh, 
that you get what you get. I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, like there's there's in that group on Facebook. Um, yeah, people go, oh, these people are being so mean to me because of these things I did, and I'm like, wow, that's some really shitty behavior on your part. <laughs> I mean, I don't say it, I don't say it, but I'm thinking it. I'm like, well, why did you engage in such shitty behavior? If you, I mean, yes, people shouldn't be bullying you online, but did you really think that you could put a big old violent? Etc. Scene in your summary, and not uh, people not lose their shit. Did you really think you could appropriate, try and appropriate an entire fandom's attention, and they weren't going to say something? Like, what does the story have to do with Hannibal and Will? I think. Um, Did you really think you could kill your main character without warning for character death and not get grief in your comment section? Honestly, if you kill the main character and you didn't warn for major character, that is like. I actually think not warning for graphic rape is the biggest, like the biggest sin, but I recognize that in fandom, the biggest sin is major character death without warning people. Um, it is like, there's like nothing you can do to make people angrier than kill off. Not just the major character in your story, but the the main character from the show. I mean, like if I go into a Harry Potter story and you kill Harry Potter and you didn't warn me in advance, well, number one, I'm never reading you again. I have a list of people that I don't read for that specific reason because they've done something to me that I found inappropriate. So I put them on the list, and now I'm not sharing the list. And two, one day, one of you is going to make me break my own rule about leaving negative feedback. <laughs> and you don't want to be that straw. <laughs> I'm just saying. Everybody has their limits. I've done very well for 10 plus years in fandom. I've never left a trolling comment. I've never left a negative comment on anybody's. But I, I can't say that, that they won't come. I had my day. I Yeah, I had my day. I, I went off on somebody one day. But, you know, but that's not, that wasn't in your comment section. That was right here. It might Facebook. have been in her comment section. I don't know. But, Ellie, if you weren't a heifer, I wouldn't have called you a heifer. <laughs> and that's not trolling. You made her cry, Ellie. I don't know what you expected. Yeah. That that actually honestly was um, you know, you don't you don't understand what I'm talking about, honestly, because calling you a heifer, that's practically affectionate from me. <laughs> it is actually. If she called you that cow, that's not nice, actually. it's uh, She's one just one step away from saying, bless your heart, in the not good way. In the not good way. There's about ten different ways a southern woman can say, bless your heart. Um, oh, bless your little heart. Yeah. All I would say on that is that knowing you're a heifer is half the battle. <laughs> You'll, 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 you'll get it there. You'll get there. <laughs> so I've already fought half that battle for you, Ellie. <laughs> but somebody, somebody mentioned the pairings in Teen Wolf. Um, I think somebody at some point told some impressionable people that they have to tag a pairing for everybody who even gets a boner in the proximity of another character. Um, <laughs> it's like, 
It's like, what is this? It's considering like it's a fandom full of teenage boys, I don't think that was appropriate advice to give. Literally, I read one story that was tagged. It was tagged for like everything. I was like, how could all these pairings exist in a story? It's like 5,000 words. I'm curious. And all it really was, was like, there was discussion about, well, if so-and-so was in a relationship with so-and-so. And because the characters speculated about somebody being in a relationship, the author tagged for it. It was like. So basically in this 5K fic, the characters got together and played fuck, Mary murder. Basically. And then, so there was a lot of pairings tagged. I mean, it's just like... <sighs> I also don't think that past relationships in the story really need to be tagged, personally. I think it's ridiculous to tag for an entire... for a character's entire banging history. Um, <laughs> you can make a little author note. And I also don't think pairings that sent pairings, and I say that with air quotes, that are about a criminal act should be tagged for. But that's just me. You know? I think the and Derek Kate sake, pairing is bullshit. Sake, um, the, slash, the slash between two names implies sex. Or <laughs> romance. Feel, feelings that are not familial in nature. It does not mean that it's not a father-son thing, unless... In the Teen Wolf fandom, unfortunately, you never know which way that slash is going to go. <laughs> oh my god. Do they actually mean? Do they not know what the slash means? Or are they telling me that they do know what the slash means? You sorry, S bastards. I'm just like, terrified <laughs> right here. Also, Teen Wolf fandom, just this, this is a tangent, but never read anything that's tagged for original dog character. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Learned that lesson the hard way. Uh. I can't even. So even if, if here's the thing, they've ruined it for everybody. Because even if you've got a great dog character, like some people write really good pets. So even if you've got one, do not write original dog character. That's just it's a big taboo now. <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't care how awesome that animal is. Don't tag for original animal character in Team Wolf. Can because... I can I still tag for original penguin character? I don't know. It's it's dangerous now. <laughs> it's iffy. It's it's ruined it for all fandoms. At the end, you team wolf. You honestly, you could be worse than supernatural. Oh, the pairings, pairings. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I just go see what's new in Teen Wolf today. Well, no, I mean, because at least Sam and Dean are adults. That can't be said in Teen Wolf. Oh, shut up, Shadow. <laughs> Go get in the corner. Disillusion us. <laughs> I mean, they're canon circumstances. They're adults. Oh! Dude. I did ooh! Oh! Take a deep breath. <laughs> There's not enough booze in the world. I can't. I can't. I not. People suck. Fandom sucks. <laughs> it's just, it's just fandom sucks. Yeah. Okay. That. Anyway, um, that actually that that kind of freaks me out. Um, <laughs> yeah, that one was a little bad. <laughs> it's a bit much. Um. 
Okay, do we have anything else about, does anybody have any questions about the guide thing or even about the sentinel thing or about the spirit animal thing? Just while we're here, is there any actual questions? Feral guide. Um, I've only written that once or plotted it once. Um, what do you want, what, what about specifically about it? Like how to, what to do with it? I think a feral guide would be very different than a feral sentinel. I think, I think of the feral sentinel as somebody's threatening my guide and I'm going to eliminate the threat. Um, feral sentinel in Tony um, Home when they had that strike team coming in to kidnap Tony and Jack killed everybody at close range. I think it would also depend on the circumstances and who they are. Because, like, um, I can see some circumstances where a feral guide would run and hide. You, yeah, know, fight, you know, fight and flight. But, I've all, but I could also see where some guys would stand and fight. Mm -hmm. Pick up a weapon and kick somebody's ass. It just depends on who they are. And what the circumstances are. Now, the, the story I plotted where there is sort of a feral guide state um, is not something that's, uh, that's plotted it, is it, the case is, is when Kate dies, because Tony's psionically, he's, he's empathically connected to her when she dies. And he follows the empathic, the psionic connection to her killer. And he come he he is just newly online and so his his brain goes it's stuck in this get rid of the threat to the tribe and he follows the basically the empathic psionic empathic um signature of airy to where airy is getting into his car and he kills him just kind of reaches out empathically and shuts his brain off um and when he is later, you know, he's examined by um, several guides. Blair comes and they Blair testifies, and he says Blair says in the in the, when he's testifying that it is a fugue state that he was in, very similar to what a feral sentinel goes through, and that no feral guides are. It's very different, and there hadn't been a precedent for a feral guide, but it didn't. The fugue state was not actually. Um, at a, on a, an empathic level wasn't any different than what a feral sentinel went through and so therefore it should be treated as the same under the law which was that Ari brought that shit on himself basically um, and that Tony shouldn't be charged with anything and he literally did bring it on himself yes he so. did because he shot Tony's partner right in front of him Don't so that won't be done <laughs> so that was the way I chose to approach the idea of a feral guy which is slipping into basically slipping into a fugue state um, because of a what was perceived as being a exigent threat, and that it had to be dealt with right then. But I think you could also have a, like Kira said, you could have a guide that is, for whatever reason, is is on a, they're at, they're in a fugue state that's pushing them off to hide. They're traumatized or. in danger or something like that. Um, what are the circumstances? What other kinds of expression of feralness might you? Um, 
if they're inadvertently exposed to a deeply disturbed person. Yeah. Uh, there there could be some kind of response. I mean, even again, it would depend on the character. Uh, also, someone like, you know, if you're um, deep emotional trauma, like there are certain jobs I wouldn't want a guide to have. I would not want to write a guide having. Um, because I, I, I think it would get to the point where it would be abusive. To go to work. If you're day in, day out dealing with the victims of sexual crimes, um, or you're dealing with, um, if you're working in vice and you're dealing with um, drug addicts all the time who have, you know, really erratic emotional landscapes, I I feel like it would be abusive long term to make a guide work in those circumstances. Yeah. Now, Ellie mentions um, Tobias Hankel and Spencer Reed. I do think a guide being tortured could wind up in a feral state. Yes, um, and I think the I th to me, it's, I think that would manifest is eventually, regardless of their intent to control their empathy, they might start lashing out empathically because it would be the only thing they have. And if they are in that kind of feral protective state. Um, It, it, and then, but then the question is, how do you deal with a feral guide, right? What happens? So if a guide, especially if they're a strong guide or powerful guide, and they're lashing out empathically and they're blowing out, you know, broadcasting empathic distress, and they are not in control of themselves in, in any way that allow themselves to rein themselves in. I think that another guide has to come in and shut them down. I don't know how else you'd handle it. Well, I mean, I guess it would depend, like, on who the guide is, is if they're bonded or if they're not bonded. Um, they might instinctually respond um, to a sentinel in that a sentinel's presence would, rec would, would give them a sense of safety. Well, you and I had talked once about um, Tony Stark coming online as a guide in Afghanistan. Not if, yeah, in Afghanistan, and um, bring all the sentinels to the yard. Yeah, <laughs> and that the distress that he when he's tortured, that the distress that he's blasting out in the on the cross, not out empathically, but the distress he's blasting to, in the psionic plane, um, had all the sentinels and guides on the planet agitated, not causing un distress to the mundanes but it was putting so much distress out onto the sonic plane that it had them all revved up and looking for him we need to fix this yeah and i can see that happening like you know and then but i do believe that if you have a world that's built on psionics that uh that a guide even in a feral state and even a sentinel in a feral state would recognize their own kind that that psionic impression of another, whether it be a sentinel or a guide, um, coming into their space um, could be enough to shake them loose from whatever they're dealing with, so that they can focus and you know seek comfort from this person who's come into their space. Yeah, 
Now in Journey Home, I do have, when Tony comes online, he comes online with no shields and he gets stuck in a feedback loop where he's bringing all the emotions that he has no ability to shield the emotions coming in and he winds up broadcasting them out. And then that distresses the people around him. So the emotions coming in become more distressed and then he's broadcasting out more distress and that feedback loop paralyzes him. And in a way, because his mind is shut down, stuck in, you could argue that that would be sort of a feral state. Um, and in that case, Blair had to basically wrap a shield around him because he wasn't able to bring it up himself. But once Tony got cut off from that feedback loop, he did get the shield in place on his own. So, but you could, you, I hadn't thought of it as him being kind of in a feral state, but considering his ability to reason was gone, I guess you could argue that that was what that was. Mm-hmm. And you also have to think about the character that's going to be coming across this this feral guide. I mean, Blair, his solution was to wrap his own psionic shield that he had built over the years around Tony to give him a buffer so he could get control of himself. Whereas it's very likely that another person could have entered this room, saw him in this situation, in these circumstances, and thought... Well, the best way to fix this is knock his ass out. <laughs> the the punching, yeah, that could be you could call that the punch the punch therapy. Or oh, I was thinking more along the lines of, of of sedation, but yeah, I mean there there probably could there probably is a character out there that thought, well, let's just punch his ass because that'll take care of that. Smack. It also depends on their circumstances. Are they in a controlled environment? Are they out in the middle of the jungle? Um, are they on a different planet? Going to do a cognitive rehabilitation, recalibration? I mean, you know, it just really honestly depends on the circumstances, like where they are, what they're doing, who's with them, and what. So this is when it really comes into play, knowing your character. Knowing both your characters in this in this particular scene, knowing how one is going to react to circumstances versus another. Like, yeah, it makes perfect sense that Blair would try to comfort Tony and kind of wrap him up in a shield and keep him safe because that's Blair. Blair's a caregiver. He is a protector. He's going to go in and just womp, you know? <laughs> Whereas I don't think McKay would have. <laughs> I don't know what McKay would have done, but I don't know. I don't think he'd have been all huggy about it. He needs a propofol nap right now. Even bitter. <laughs> Get a hold of yourself. <laughs> but, you know, I do think Rodney would have wanted to help him. Yes, obviously. But maybe he would have approached it differently than Blair. And this is when it's really, really important to know your characters so that you know how they're going to respond in the circumstances that you give them. Because, like, say, for instance, if it was like, a feral sentinel and, and another sentinel comes across him maybe that feral sentinel recognizes this sentinel enough to not be violent with them or to respond to them and the sentinel who is in their right mind will be like okay i've got a precious few seconds to get control of this situation anybody else have precious and few go through their heads <laughs> Just saying. I mean, like, you know, say for instance, just just for instance, John Shepard goes fair on a planet and they can't find him. So they bring in a tracker from the FBI 
to find his ass, right? For some reason, Ronan wasn't available. Work with me on this. Ian Edgerton finds John Shepard, and he's feral. Ian's going to punch John Shepard in the face. <laughs> I mean, that's just throw him over his shoulder and carry him back to the Stargate. That's fair. just how it's going to happen, right? Totally fair. <laughs> Found him. <laughs> Here's your zoomie. <laughs> He's not so zoomy right now. Whereas, you know, Ron would just be like, don't make me shoot you. <laughs> I will shoot you. I'll shoot you with this big ass blaster if I have to. It's set on stun. <laughs> but it's going to happen. <laughs> and and to be fair, I think that Jack O'Neill's reaction would be just zat him and take him home. <laughs> Here's your zat. He'd be giving everybody a zat as they left the jumper. Here's your zat. <laughs> Once. You could only shoot him once. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it, it just depends on who you have in those circumstances, both the feral part and the non-feral part. I'm a little worried about that banner, Ellie. I am too. <laughs> I don't even know what to think. Is this good stalking or, or worried, Ellie? I mean, <laughs> I'm not any less worried than I was before. <laughs> Let's end the podcast. I got some questions for this girl that I don't want recorded. <laughs> so, um, lady, woman, mature female adult. Okay. I want to thank you guys for joining us. Um, okay. I hope that this was informative and that you learned a lot. Um, say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>